Good evening. I'd like to call this November 14th, 2023 school board regular meeting to order. Ms. Goodell, could you please take the roll? Yes, uh, Dr. Anderson? Here. Dr. Dimmick? So she's not here. Ms. Downs? Here. Dr. Gould? Here. Dr. Ortiz? Here. Ms. Silverman? Here. And Ms. Tice? Here. Thank you. Thank you. And, and before we uh, say the pledge, sorry, Vice Chair Gould, I actually went out of order. Uh, we needed to approve um, Dr. Demick's participation uh, via electronic uh, means this evening. Um, she's actually going to be joining us in a few minutes. She's out of town and um, on personal matters, but she is caught in traffic, so she will be joining us momentarily. Uh, so I'd like to, in accordance with policy BDD, I'd like to move that uh, the board approved the participation of school board member Susan Dimmick by remote access to the school board meeting due to a personal matter, specifically traveling for a family event. If I could have a second, please. Second. Thank you. All those in favor say yes. yes. All those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries. My apologies for going out of order on that one, Ms. Goodell. Okay, now we're at uh, 1.04. Please join me in saying the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. We are at 1.05, adoption of the agenda. If I could have a motion, please, to adopt the agenda. Yes, Vice Chair Gould. I move that the board adopt the agenda as presented. Thank you. Could I have a second? Thank you, Ms. Silverman. All those in favor say yes. Yes. All those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries. And uh, before we kick off, I just wanted to um, say, have, I guess, offer a brief congratulations. We had elections in the city of Falls Church just recently. And um, congratulations, Dr. Jared Anderson, on your reelection. And I uh, also wanted to congratulate uh, Ms. Amy Murphy and Ms. Bethany Henderson, who have also um, been elected as new school board members. And they will um, just, uh, people, I think, sometimes get confused. Uh, Dr. Dimmick and I, our terms go till December 31st, and uh, then we'll be rolling off. And uh, Ms. Henderson and Ms. Murphy will begin their terms on, in January. Okay, we're now at 2.01, Resource Management and Continuous Improvement, uh, Spotlight Team FCCPS, and Dr. Nuno, I'll turn it to you. Thank you, Chair Downs. Good evening, everybody. Great to see you. Um, tonight um, wraps up our, our fifth um, video in the series uh, around the new strategic plan that we implemented last year and launched. Um, tonight's focus area is on continu uh, continuous improvement and resource management. Um, over the course of the next year, year and a half, we will continue to update you, but maybe in different ways. This was our first attempt to educate the community on some of the work that we're doing relative to the strategic plan. So I want to thank in advance, uh, Paul Swanson. Dr. Swanson was uh, responsible for helping pull this video together like the, the last few. Um, and tonight, uh, this, this is a nice little montage of uh, information for you. So take it away there, Mr. Brett. Resource management and continuous improvement is one of the focus areas in Falls Church City Public Schools strategic plan. It's really important that we're transparent in how we're allocating resources, that our resources are aligned with our priorities and goals, and that we're continually looking at how can we invest the resources we have to achieve better outcomes. All of us at Falls Church City Public Schools are lifelong learners, so resource management and continuous improvement are key to our success. 
When we think about that focus area of resource management and continuous improvement, we need to have substantial evidence to show whether or not we are in fact improving. So for each one of the 14 key actions in the strategic plan, we wrote a series of performance indicators. These are descriptions of what success in that particular key action might look like. And all of those things can be found on our website so that at any given time, anybody in our community or within the division can take a look and see exactly how we're faring relative to the kind of progress that we're making. So one of our larger undertakings this year at Falls Church City Public Schools was the beginning the installation of our solar panel project. The reason this is important for the city is it's going to bring us closer to our sustainable energy goals that are in our very new, near future within the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, as you can see, they're about 80% done on the main roof. They've already started putting the bases on the lower roofs. By the end of the week, they hope to have all the modules in place and start hooking up the electricity, and then we'll be go from there. When I see the school board investing money in, in our school, in our f athletic fields, um, it, makes, it makes me feel like the school board is really investing in us, the students, and it makes me proud to be a Mustang. One of the big changes here at Oak Street happens to be our new entrance, the uh, ramp and the new steps. Um, and it's a huge thing for the whole diversity, equity, inclusion of students that have mobility issues, parents, grandparents, community members. It's allowed them to be able to enter in the front door like everybody else has the opportunity to do. So this past spring, as part of our resource management improvement across the division, in the communications department, we've added website interrupts to all of the pages on all of our websites across the division. They are these orange, orange buttons, little tabs on the right-hand side. And if you find a problem or have a suggestion for a web page, we want you to click on that. It opens a brief survey that will take only one minute to fill out where you can report an issue, make a suggestion, give us a compliment, or provide other information that would help us in improving the web page that you're on. Once you've sent off the form, it goes to all of the webmasters for all of our schools plus here in the division, and we can take action immediately to improve that web page that you were on. Also, in addition, once every 30 days, if you're on a website, and as you get ready to leave that website, there will be another interrupt that pops up and says, help us improve. Would you be willing to answer a few questions about your experience? And this launches into a very similar form that gives us uh, contact information. Uh, if you're looking for the school calendar, job openings, registration information, whatever, this also helps us uh, help you in finding things on our website. So this year we have installed a program called Securely. Uh, securely is actually three different programs. First, it is a filter that all FCCPS devices now use. Um, this gives administrators quick access to web traffic that is flagged. The second is Securely Home. This is an application that gives parents, that helps parents manage FCCPS devices while they are at home. This management includes internet activity, setting time limits, etc. Uh, the third is Dino Secured Classroom. This is a program that manages uh, student engagement while they are in the classroom. Some of the improvements that we're trying to do here at FCCPS as far as our registration goes um, is to roll it out earlier. 
Um, in previous years, we've rolled it out closer to summer, which is a little bit more of a hectic time for parents. Um, so doing it in March um, is, uh, is a good opportunity for parents to prepare for a registration as far as paperwork or what needs to be done um, online in order to get um, kids enrolled sooner rather than later. And that helps the school system tremendously um, as we plan ahead for the uh, year. So about 18 months ago, the treasurer of Falls Church City decided to put out a request for proposal for banking services. She had a good result. She contracted with a company to uh, process these proposals. And we feel very strongly that the, uh, the best proposal won, and we are now with J.P. Morgan Chase. It's been a good transition. We're excited about it on a number of fronts. And some of the key service areas that we're either utilizing or looking forward to utilizing is the remote check deposit for our finance assistance, um, the availability for all of our staff related to banking to actually have a login to JP Morgan Chase and they can have that live um, searchability within the bank software. They also have a lot of potential for us for online banking services for ACH and other types of payment methods. So we're really excited about the change. It's a, it, it has a lot of potential. So um, in addition to the taxpayer funds, we also receive, well, Falls Church City Public School receives non-taxpayer funds, which the community and other FCEF grants come in and within that finance manages the money which is audited yearly and auditors have found in a couple of years past couple of years there was nothing to be found that we are managing the money money very well um, that shows the community that everything's being taken care of by Falls Church City Public School employees in finance. Any school system anywhere in the United States and worldwide is subject to finite resources. You know, would that it were not so, but the reality is um, time and money are not endless. And so any division as it seeks to get the very best outcome that it can for kids has to recognize that we need to manage limited resources effectively and appropriately so that we can get the biggest bang for our buck. And I think by, by any meaningful measure here in Falls Church, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that we are doing just that. Thank you so much for that very informative video. And Mr. Brett, I, I'm sure you were the the person behind all of this, and it was it was terrific and very informative. And uh, Dr. New, you know, I often say that it, I've said many times that you know our, this really revolves around a lot around a lot of our operations staff. And I often say that you know our operations staff are really our unsung heroes. Um, I think a lot of people um, in the community don't even n put names with faces. Everything runs so smoothly in this division. Um, so it's sort of taken for granted. And I think this would be something that I know uh, Mr. Brett would highlight this tomorrow in morning announcements as part of the agenda. But I'm wondering if we just pull it out and actually do its own little 
highlight it because I just think it would be, it's so informative, you know, just in terms of what you talked about with the website and how people can offer feedback, but also just to put names with faces. Um, you know, we, this board knows how much we rely on the um, amazing Krista Michael, and I just, um, maybe she, I don't know if everyone wants to get their faces and names out there, but I think Mr. Fowler, there's so many people that I think they're just so in, integral to making this system run, so I would love to see that really highlighted if we Yeah, could. thanks. Um, perhaps we can um, put all five back together again at some point in the next week or so, and um, maybe maybe not tomorrow sure. right away, but maybe we could pull all of them together and put them, put them out there as a, as a packet. Yeah, that would be great. That's a great idea. Okay. Any questions or comments on this video? Well, thank you again. That was really, really informative. Okay, we're going to move on to now to um, recognition and reports, section three, and we're at 3.01. And we have uh, the, let's put up here, the uh, Native American Alaska Native Heritage Month resolution. And I'm going to go ahead and read that into the record. So this is the Falls Church City Public School Board Resolution 24-23-2023 Native American Alaska Native Heritage Month. Whereas the month of November is recognized as Native American Alaska, I'm sorry, Native American Alaska Native Heritage Month. And whereas Falls Church City Public Schools are committed to recognizing and celebrating the diverse cultures represented in our community, staff, and students. And whereas President George H.W. Bush first recognized Native American Alaska Native Heritage Month in November 1990, whereas this month is a time to learn about the tribes, to raise a general awareness, awareness about the unique challenges Native people have faced both historically and in the present, and the ways in which tribal citizens have worked to conquer these challenges. And whereas there are 324 distinct federally recognized Native American reservations, including federal reservations and off-reservation trust land. And whereas there are 7.1 million Native American Alaska Native heritage people in the United States as of 2020. And whereas there are currently over 142,000 Native American Alaska Native heritage veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces. And now, therefore, be it resolved that the Falls Church City School Board does hereby proclaim November 2023 as Native American Alaska Native Heritage Month in Falls Church City Public Schools and urges all to respect and honor our diverse community and celebrate and build a culture of inclusivity and equity. If I could have a motion to approve this resolution, please. So moved. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. Could I have a second? Thank you, Vice Chair Gould. All those in favor say yes. Yes. All those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries and the resolution is adopted and approved. Okay, we're at 3.02, uh, Stephen Fuller Institute. And, oh, there you are, Dr. Noonan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm moving around on you tonight. Keeping uh, me on my toes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity tonight um, to share some information about enrollment over, our enrollment overviews and some projections. Um, I feel like this might be one of the more anticipated presentations that we've had in a while uh, for a number of reasons. Certainly as a, as a City of Falls Church resident um, who recently had a community event um, a lot of questions were, wh where are all these kids coming from? And, and why do we have so many students moving into our schools? And um, I want to preface um, the presentation this evening with just a little bit of information, um, because I think it's important for not just the school board, but more particularly um, our community to understand that um, we are 
absolutely excited to see what's going on in our community with the addition of students. And we'll share some information about some student growth this year, some anticipated growth over the next couple of years and the like. And the reason that, that I am particularly excited is uh, that we planned for this. Um, and, and it's always nice when you plan for something and it kind of comes to fruition. Um, some of you might remember the long uh, afternoons, evenings, uh, and events as we led up to the building of the new high school, as an example. Um, you know, Wyatt Shields and I worked hand in glove to make sure that we were able to communicate and articulate clearly um, how, how the modeling of the economics were going to work to support the payments for the debt service for the high school that would be uh, greater capacity um, for our secondary students. Um, we, we have updated not just the built a new high school, we have a relatively new middle school. Um, Oak Street Elementary, just over a decade ago, got a big addition as well. Um, one of the first things that I did when I got here um, seven years ago was to put a, a very large addition on at Mount Daniel Elementary School. And just before that, um, we opened Jesse Thackeray Preschool to take the preschool students off of the Mount Daniel campus and put them onto their own site. So for the last decade and a half, um, this board, the superintendents um, previous to me, have truly been planning for what we knew was eventually going to happen, that there would be additional growth um, in our schools. So um, with that, I, I want to um, just first share my excitement and my enthusiasm for the students that are coming. But I also at the same time want to give you a sense of where we are capacity-wise. Um, because you're going to hear some numbers tonight that might, um, that might set you back just for a second and say, wow, it really looks like over the next few years we're going to see quite a, a, quite a growth. Um, and so I want to just give you a sense of where we are relative to um, capacities in buildings. And these capacities that I'll share with you are, um, are full utilization rates. So for example, if we fully utilized all the classrooms every period of every day um, at Jesse Thackeray Preschool, uh, we have a capacity of 100 at JTP. Right now that gives us room for about 33 students of growth. Um, at Mount Daniel Elementary, uh, we have a capacity of 660, and right now we have um, the ability to accommodate about 140 more students at Mount Daniel. Um, at Oak Street, our capacity is 750, and I'll share all these data with you as well. 750, so we have a growth opportunity for 172 students at Oak Street. At Henderson, our current uh, capacity is 768, which leaves us room for 127 students. And at Meridian High School, we currently have a capacity of 1,200. But as you'll remember, we did future-proof that building. And on the fourth and the fifth floor, we have an opportunity to build out six larger spaces. So the capacity there is really 1,500 uh, if we utilize the entire building to its fullest capacity, which gives us room for about 587 more students. So I think it's important to note that um, one of the things that never happens is when you see 100 students new to the system, they don't all come to second grade. <laughs> they really are split across the pre-K-12 continuum. And knowing that we have capacity that can achieve that and can accommodate the growth right now is uh, something that I think is, is meaningful uh, for the community and planned for. So one might ask, well, when do we start to see some challenges? And um, you know, we, we've got a number of different data sets that we can look at over time, um, but we do start to see some challenges uh, building-wise 
in, uh, based on some of the numbers that we currently are utilizing um, at somewhere around 2040, 2045. And at that point in time, there may need to be some modification to the CIP um, moving forward. But for the foreseeable future, um, we, are, we are in very good shape. So with that, um, sort of as a, as a preface to the presentation, um, I'd love to share with you tonight um, our, our work around enrollment overview and projections, um, not just from um, the school system and from Weldon Cooper Center, but we're very fortunate this evening um, to, to have a guest with us that I'll introduce here in just a second. So let me, um, let me just begin by saying, um, you know, each year as we start the budget process, um, this is something that's a very important uh, moment for us, is to look at what are the projections as we move forward into the future. Um, we have traditionally received for the last 15 years projections from the Weldon Cooper Center. And the Weldon Cooper Center, as you may recall, is the center at the University of Virginia that provides projections to many of the school divisions around the Commonwealth and also to um, the State Department of Education and to the legislature. In fact, they are the group that state uh, sales tax distribution is based on the data that comes from the Weldon Cooper Center. Um, however, knowing that um, we have a unique circumstance and situation here in the City of Falls Church with all of the growth that's going on, um, the school board, thank you very much, along with the general government and city council, um, along with my partner Wyatt Shields on the, on the general government side, decided to um, put out an RFP to get a demographer um, in to help us really sort through what are the numbers going to look like in the foreseeable future for the City of Falls Church Schools. Um, and, and as I think everybody here knows, the Stephen Fuller Institute um, was selected. And tonight we have Dr. Terry Clower with us. Dr. Clower, thank you for being here. Uh, from the Stephen Fuller uh, Institute. Um, he is the director for the Center for Regional Analysis and also is the Northern Virginia Chair and University Professor at the Shar School of Public Policy at George Mason University. Um, so each year, again, these are the first steps in, in our budget process. So let me start with um, current enrollment. And you're not going to be able to probably see this <laughs> um, on the screen, but I do want to just give you a sense of where we are. Um, we do take enrollment after September 30th, and that is calculated um, as part of our fall record collection that goes to the State Department of Education. Um, in addition to sending it to the State Department of Education, we also send those data to the Weldon Cooper Center, who then begins to develop our projections. Um, what this chart shows you is a historical enrollment by grade level um, for FY19 through FY23, as well as the projected and actual enrollment for the school year as of September 30th. The last two columns in this chart on the right show the variance in the actual enrollment with the projections and the variance with the prior actual enrollment. So for example, the projected enrollment for kindergarten this year was 159 students and we had 160 students enroll. So we were one more than projected and also 27 more than we had in the prior year. Just for the good of the order, um, kindergarten is the hardest grade level to project because we don't know who's gonna be coming in and who's not. Um, but overall, and I think this is the important point that I'd like to share here on this slide, is that the enrollment this year on September 30th uh, was 2,634 students, which is 82 more than we budgeted for last year. So you might remember our budget each year is based on a number of students. We had 82 more students this year than we budgeted for, and we also have, at the same time, 100 more students total. 
So we have a budgeted number and then we have the enrollment and we have 80, 82 more than we budgeted for, but overall 100 more. Um, this this uh, chart will share um, some information that gives you uh, by school some of the enrollment. So if you look at it on the right-hand column, again, you'll see the variance with projection and the variance with prior year actual. Um, the summary numbers to the right, I think, are the most important here. Um, and you'll see that at Oak Street Elementary School, um, at uh, Mary Ellen Henderson Middle School is where we're seeing some of our largest growth patterns that are beginning to emerge. Um, this is another graphical way of sharing what our data looks like in terms of en enrollment from 2001 to, to uh, this current year. Um, you will see the dip during 2020-21. That is the pandemic, uh, the pandemic years there. And you can see us starting to begin to climb um, back to pre-pandemic numbers um, and likely, um, based on what we're seeing in the data, an, ex an exceeding of those pre-pandemic numbers. So who are the students that we're serving that are coming in? Um, and, and this is an interesting slide for us because uh, one thing we know is that students that are coming into our system um, that have uh, needs that are outside of um, sort of a, a, a general education requirement um, need some extra support, and that is a budgetary item. This particular chart indicates um, our multi-year history of ESOL students, or ELs, our English learners. The top section is the students who are currently receiving services. The middle section is students who have exited ESOL services, or sometimes referred to as students that are bridging. And then the last section are students who refused or declined to receive ESOL services. So these are parents of students who may already speak English um, uh, with, uh, with great ease, read, write, speak, and listen, um, and, and maybe came into the country um, but had enough education in English. So those, student, those parents have um, declined services. But for the students receiving services, um, the current year, there are 139 students, and that is 15 more than we had um, the prior year. But still, those numbers are below what we experienced prior to the pandemic. Um, but it's important to know that we have 139 ESOL students. So the next chart is our student population that's broken down a little bit further by some other categories. Um, and I think that these are important to um, pay attention to. You'll see our economically disadvantaged um, students, these are students that are considered on free and reduced lunch, has grown by 37% this year. So we're seeing um, larger uh, pockets of poverty um, that are, are playing into the work that we're doing. And we know that poverty is an indicator uh, for some need, um, whether it's economic support through the free and reduced lunch program, or in many cases, some additional um, educational need as well. Our students with disabilities has grown by 17 students, which is a 5% growth. Our students with a 504 plan, these are students that have an identified um, disability that may uh, not necessarily uh, require an IEP. Um, and these students actually with a 504 plan has increased by 27 students across the division, which is 15.6%. Uh, um, again, you'll see that 12% increase in ESOL students. We saw a decline again um, in students who are homeschooling. Um, we saw an 8% decline there. And then we did see um, an increase in students who are paying tuition, and this is uh, separate and apart from those students that are paying tuition at Jesse Thackeray Preschool. So we have about 20, not about, we do have 25 students that are currently um, paying tuition to the City of Falls Church. 
So here are some prior Weldon Cooper projections that I think are important to kind of look at. Again, um, these are for information, um, and any and all information that we collect can really be useful to us. Um, but this chart um, shows the projection in blue and the actual enrollment in gold for each grade level. The largest gaps between the actual and the projected enrollment were at Oak Street this year, when in past years, um, the greatest gap has been in kindergarten. Kindergarten, sixth grade, and grade nine are traditionally where we see students who are new to Falls Church City Public Schools, and that is because those are transition years um, in, our, in our division. Um, so one might ask then, so what is the projection accuracy of these Weldon Cooper Center numbers? Um, and this is just a, essentially a flat line lying on the 100% mark, showing that the, the year-over-year projections from Weldon Cooper have been relatively close. Um, and another, another way of showing it here is um, by percentage. Um, so last year, there was a difference of 2%. The year before it was a negative 4%, but the range um, going back to 2015 is somewhere between 8.6% and negative 4%. But on average, the median is going to be, or um, the moat, sorry, not going to get that right. I'm just going to say average. Um, the average is going to be pretty close to about 2.5% um, uh, differential. So it's, it's not terribly off from year to year. But there are some challenges that we'll share with you tonight with, of course, with the Weldon Cooper Center's projections. So here are um, the FY25 and beyond. And this is going to take just a little bit of explanation, not for the board, but more for the community. And that is that each fall, um, after we have our September 30th data enrollment that we send to the Weldon Cooper Center, um, they then prepare projections for us as we move forward. Those projections are used for the upcoming budget. Um, and again, we also use those projections as part of our capital planning process to determine whether or not we need to make adjustments to our buildings. The Weldon Cooper Center projections also um, help us prepare um, for the state allocations that we're going to see that are going to come through from whether it's uh, the final budget that the governor signs um, or uh, other dollars that we may get. And the development of those projections use um, a number of, of different um, pieces of information. And the first is birth data, and the second is fall membership data. Um, birth data comes from the Virginia Center for Health Statistics and is used to project future births. And then the membership data comes from the division and the Virginia Department of Education. So we do work hand in glove with the VDOE to try to determine um, what our growth projections are going to look like along with those birth data. So when we, when we took it, uh, take a look at the Weldon Cooper Center um, data, one of the things that you'll see is that each grade level um, has what's called a grade level progression uh, ratio. And this is a little wonky, uh, you know, if you're into statistics, <laughs> for example, um, you might enjoy this a lot. Um, but essentially what these ratios begin to do is begin to capture enrollment patterns of cohorts over time um, as students move from grade to grade. Uh, but since this fluctuates each year, Weldon Cooper uses three sets of data for their projections. Um, and it's one year, uh, a year, one year from the most recent year, and then three years based on a five-year average. And that's sort of the way that they uh, begin to look at those uh, progressions. But the calculation um, is developed by dividing the number of students in a specific grade by the number of students from the previous grade in the prior year. 
Um, so if a second grade um, student population, for example, has 100 students, it's then divided by the number of students in first grade. So if you have 100 students in first grade and 100 students in second grade, your ratio is going to be um, a, a one, essentially. Um, and that ratio, if it's, if it's one, uh, is great. If it's greater than one, that means to us that, um, or, or greater than 100%, that means to us that we have more students that are moving into that grade than we had the prior year. If that ratio is less than one or showing less than 100%, it means that we have fewer students moving in uh, for, from that prior year. So these um, data in this chart indicate kind of where we are as t in terms of ratio progressions. And if you look at the far, uh, uh, the very bottom, um, you will see by grade level kind of what our projection ratios look like. So remember 100% is sort of a, a one to one ratio and knowing that um, in kindergarten we're at 122%, first grade 110, second 104, you can look at them all the way across and we don't get to below 100 until we get to 10th grade and 11th grade, and then 12th grade, we jump back up to over 100, which means that in every grade level um, this last year, we grew with the exception of grades 10 and 11. Um, so those are important data for us to consider as we think about our projections for the future. The next is birth rates. Um, and Northern Virginia, um, I think there's been a lot of press about this recently, um, and, and one of the things that we have seen in the press and, and otherwise is that in Northern Virginia, birth rates have dropped over the recent years. And even though birth rates have rebounded um, from 21 and 22, birth rates are still lower than they were a few years ago. Um, Weldon Cooper Center did note um, that while Falls Church is one of the more attractive areas in Northern Virginia to live, I would suggest the best place to live in Northern Virginia, um, lower birth rates will certainly still cause enrollment to decline um, based, on, based on their data. And here is a graphical representation of what that looks like uh, for Falls Church specifically <coughs> relative to neighboring jurisdictions. So we're the red line. Um, and the, the jurisdictions around us are the blue line. So you see that we are a little bit above um, what's happening around us as well. But the thing that Weldon Cooper fails to recognize in their presentation of the data is the impact of local changes in our housing uh, market. And this is where um, we're really excited to have a demographer help us. Um, someone who can come in and really look at what our housing stock is going to look like for the future and really give us a sense of uh, the direction that we need to head. Because I don't think, um, based on the information that is up here, for example, that currently under construction at West Falls, we have 247 units for sale in condominiums and approximately 400 units of multifamily traditional and micro apartments. The Broad and Washington project includes multifamily rental apartments and there's 339 units there. And Founders Row 2, when it's completed, will have 280 multifamily rental apartments. Those are not included in the Weldon Cooper Center's data and these are really important projects. And again, I, I, I want to just reiterate, we've planned for this, we're ready for it, um, but at the same time, um, the challenge for us will be um, not the space, 
The challenge will be for us getting people to fill the positions and making sure that we have the adequate budget and sufficient, more than sufficient, but adequate budget um, to be able to do the work that needs to be done in schools. So with that, um, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Dr. Clower from um, the Weldon Cooper Center for his comments um, and some further insight about how things are looking as we move towards the future. So Dr. Clower, thank you. Yeah. That's a, a head right there. Very good. One. Thank you, Superintendent Noonan. Uh, thank you very much for having us come in. And um, I'm not at the Weldon Cooper Center, but I'll be happy to send them a bill for my time tonight. Uh, so that, that'll be fine. No. Um, so just real quickly, uh, I'm not going to spend much on the Stephen Fuller Institute, you've heard of that, and then if you've been around for a while, you've heard of the Center for Regional Analysis, and we work kind of two units, and that's all been, I'm not even sure it could be called merger, but we are two units within the same. CRA takes a little bit broader view than just the, the region, but as you know, we've been around for a long time, and we look forward to uh, doing these kind of projects, working with local governments. I, I want to call out a couple of things. So one is that much of the work that you're seeing being reported here was done by my colleague Keith Waters, Dr. Keith Waters, he's assistant director. Uh, when it came to a choice, I could either teach his class until 10 o'clock tonight or come have an enjoyable conversation with you folks. So guess what? Uh, you know, uh, Keith's teaching. Uh, the other is I want to publicly acknowledge the support and my admiration for Kristen Michael, who has been, we've been working together on this, lots of hours spent on the phone, you know, going through the data. The other thing I'll tell you is I have done quite a number of these kind of, of projections for school districts, mostly in Texas, where I come from. And this, I have never worked with a school district that has the level of detailed data available. It's a trove. It has been, and now I'm not saying you're getting a discount because of that, but I am going to say that it has been, the data that you have available allow you to do planning that is very much at the upper ends of abilities that I see in other school districts. So congratulations on that. Now let's just dig right on into it. I'm sorry, i go back on one here. Um, our key thing that we're wanting to do here, just a little bit different as, um, as your superintendent suggested, is that in a, in a place where you have a relatively stable population, of course, in, you know, and let's face it, you're landlocked, the big issue is what's happening with housing development. And of course, that's a part of what we do. We work with uh, uh, housing developers and the uh, Northern Virginia Association of Realtors and others. But what we wanted to do in this exercise, and this is being done for the city as well as the school district, is to look at the new housing, basically figure out what's that going to do in terms of housing supply, what population change, and then of course the contribution rates of those houses that we see coming in. And a few of these were mentioned um, in the superintendent's presentation, were you looking at what these folks are going to get and some of these projects? So we actually talked to the developers about when these projects are actually going to come in line. And of course, there's still projections on it. It's very interesting to look at the little bit of the dynamics, but you have some big projects coming on, on board. Um, and we're expecting, so for example, uh, the um, Founders Row will be at their stabilized growth at about 18 months or something like that. Well, a couple of things we're doing, when we're looking at condo properties, we're basically assuming that they are occupied the day they are available on the marketplace because we, as you well know, we have a very tight, historically low inventory of homes for sale in this entire region, not just here. Uh, in Falls Church, the last number I have is you take all the homes 
on the market and they could be sold at the rate of sales in about six days. The old tradition in real estate is a balanced market is four months. So we, we just assume that if something comes on the market, it's, it's sold immediately. What we hear from the apartment developers is if you have a, a fairly large apartment complex, that can take 12 to 18 months to get in because of the pace they do about qualifying people to get in and, and do them. And, and so we have allowed for that at the pace of, of development. Now in the out years, um, we looked at different types of elements. So single family, well, guess what? You're not going to get much more of that. Uh, you know, it's just a few dribs and drabs here or there, a few that come up that might be where a larger lot gets split out or something like that. The um, condos, uh, we, we take those out as we note, and then townhomes, the city is actually, city planning department is projecting that they're expecting about six townhome units in a year. Now, this does not include anything that might happen in the future about converting existing office spaces and commercial spaces into other uses like residential. Uh, I know there is a whole lot being talked about in this region and we do have some case studies. Keep in mind, on a nationwide basis, less than 10% of office buildings can practically be converted into residential. The floor plates are wrong, it just doesn't work, doesn't pencil out, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at it. So there's a little bit of a, of a thing about that that might be something that is a risk factor in our outer year projections as we look and think about what do we do with obviously office buildings that are across our region that are market stressed at the moment and likely to stay that way for a long time. Um, Whoops, I'm sorry, I went the wrong direction. There we go. Uh, so we looked at this. I'm going to just skip over this an estimated number of households. Uh, you can kind of see, but one of the things that we have to apply to this is a vacancy rate. And our vacancy rate comes from a couple of different sources. Um, we use for, for townhomes and condos, and we use the uh, uh, American Community Survey public use microsample data for those of you that are true data geeks. Um, that microsample area is not actually just Falls Church. It includes pieces of Fairfax County, uh, Northeast Fairfax County and Arlington North, but it seems to be a, a relatively reasonable section. Uh, no, apartments, etc. cetera. Uh, we are assuming that ownership units are basically 100% occupied that based on market demand, if there's a unit out there, it's gonna be available. I, and I don't see any reason, and I see nothing in our future that would suggest that that's different. So from that, then we wanna take the, uh, the enrollments of how, what kind of contribution rate does each household provide to the school district. And we, we have these numbers, I'm not gonna, I don't think I wanna go into the specifics, I'll leave it to you, you have these uh, data and charts in your packet, uh, and you can see some of the distributions of it, but effectively for our out projections, we look at two sets of numbers. One of them is that the most recent year is indicative of how things look, especially in the near term. The other is to go back and see what was happening prior to the pandemic, because as you well noted, we had that, that dip down. I think it's really interesting to see that certainly, as you might expect, the homeschooling went up that one year, but it's since kind of stabilized back, but the overall contribution rate is still below that, eight, that 18 and 19 kind of year level. And quite frankly, I don't, I don't know where those kids are. Uh, to be honest with you. I don't know if they're being homeschooled. I don't know if they're in private school. That's probably some of it, uh, but we just simply don't know for sure. 
I'm certainly not going to try to read that to you. Um, my eyes aren't that good, but it's in the data. Let's just look at it from a chart. This is, you know, the chart, the picture telling a, a story a lot better. So you've got three lines up here. That <coughs> bottom line is the Weldon Cooper numbers with our adjustments. Weldon Cooper actually doesn't forecast out pre-K. So we took our numbers for pre-K and added it into Weldon Cooper, so at least these lines are apples to apples in that sense of what kids that we're talking about. The orangish line there in the middle is our projections based on your last year contribution rates and then looking at the development pipeline as we are seeing it, what we already know is coming, and what the planning department has in their future land use plans for approving in the future. That gray line above it, that's the interesting shock and the risk factor. That's that same projection on housing growth, but what if you have what we call in forecasting a step function where it goes right back to that 18 to 19 contribution levels? And that gap between those is roughly about 200 um, kids. And you think about start dividing that, how many more T, even though it gets spread out over the different grades, that starts talking about staffing levels. And that's the one that if it if you have that jump back, if you know, we have this thing that we've been told, the president has told us the pandemic is over. And but we still see people behaving a little bit differently. If they return back to 2018, 2019 behaviors, you guys could see a sudden surge in the enrollments. Now as you've heard, you've got capacity in terms of physical capacity. Facilities are, are not a problem, but we all know about the challenges of finding teachers. So with that, I want to go ahead and just, just close out with a couple of things and, and be able to, you know, I'm happy to answer any questions. I will share one other thing to you. I was doing something on a Saturday when I was looking at these data a little bit. Keith was doing his work and he had been working with Kristen. And just for giggles, I opened up one of these AI search engines and just said, how many kids are in the public school system in Falls Church? The answer I got from the brilliant AI that's going to solve all of our problems was 20,200. So only a decimal place. Now I have to figure out next year, next spring when I'm teaching a data class, how to tell kids, forget what you're reading and still go look at the data. But with that, happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you so much. Um, I'll, I'll start with a question I have. Uh, so right, so does, does your institute have a relationship with Walden Cooper? Uh, other than uh, every now and then we, we talk to each other, but we are as often competitors as we are collaborators. Okay. But, but understand, the Weldon Cooper Center is actually what's called the State Data Center. Right. They are, you know, they are right, because the it's through UVA. So, right. we, so we use it. I think what was important about this one was the one of knowing that their processes are a little bit of more traditional mm -hmm. forecasting methods. And it just, in a community of the size of Falls Church, when you guys are reshaping the urban form of your community with new housing development to meet the population growth demands, to be able to provide housing for the local workforce, it changes that nature and those and those traditional methods of forecasting really become problematic. Well, that was exactly my point. You know, I, I remember when I first uh, came onto the school board and we were doing our first budget um, meeting and we have all kinds of, Kristen Michael gives us all kinds of information and that was always the caveat when we got that Wolden Cooper projection that it didn't take into account upcoming construction. And when I first came on the school board, that was in January of 2020, 
wasn't really, you know, we didn't have that much. Now, four years later, we have a ton of things coming on. So I'm really glad that we have you here and that you're giving us a much different, I guess, a, a, a more thorough picture of what, what's going on. Yeah, I don't want to distract from what they do at all. I think the Weldon Cooper numbers, you know, with their limitations, right, right. Say it's, any, it, it's, it's, I think, good information for you to have. But from a planning perspective, the challenge that you have in, in, in basically staff recruitment right. and retention, this is the big one that will just, you know, are we ready to hire an extra 10 teachers next year? Right. Well, gee, can you, most school districts are struggling to say, can I keep the ones I've got? Right. Right. No, that is, is, we are in a critical teacher shortage. And and not only that, you know, I think, Dr. Newton, thank you so much for those numbers. I know Ms. Tice was looking for those numbers about the capacity of our buildings. But um, as you said, and, and I know you'll agree, it's not, it's not just the capacity of our buildings. It's also buses, you know, te teachers, of course. But, you know, buses, bus drivers, you know, it's all, it's all of that. So, you know, it's great that we have the capacity, but there's so much more that's going to cost money to educate and transport and feed our children so it'll be an interesting um, an interesting dance to sort of figure out as we move ahead too uh, because it is going to cost more um, to maintain the services that we have and for us uh, to, to be able to maintain those services there may be a different level of need um, that comes forward mm -hmm. there are certainly ways around that um, but it reduces the services that we provide. And, and right now, I think one of the things we do really well is we have uh, a very relational uh, classroom mm -hmm. where our class numbers are staffed at a pretty low number. We've got great services with buses where we, we have a, a very small circle, <laughs> a right. very small sort of uh, ride dimension. Um, and there are ways to save money by expanding, you know, the distances students have to walk or making class sizes larger. And I don't think um, that that's who we are. And so I think being able to socialize that early or in the process then later is, is certainly helpful. That's right. That's if right. I might, ma'am, one yes, thing that I would add is that um, in our discussions with the city staff, they have indicated that they want us to basically extend our scope of work beyond. And we're doing other things for the city. They include the commercial properties, employment forecast and all. But into the spring, bring us back and start looking at some of the sub, you know, some of the assumptions, particularly about the new housing that's just coming online this come in 2024, especially. And we'll be kind of take another bite at it of, you know, as we get more, will those buildings are being projected to open in September and October mm -hmm. next year? Are they still on pace for that? And I, that's a really critical one for you next year. And it's not going to give you a lot of lead time, but if we can do some of that, and, and again, we're in communication with the developers, so just making sure that they're staying on target mm -hmm. for their open dates. Because I very much expect that once they start selling, and they haven't, and one of the condo buildings has not opened up sales at all. They they they're kind of holding their powder dry a little bit on that. But as you well know, you guys accept students for people who are about to move into the mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that that's great. It's great to know that too, because uh, you know I think. There have been, um, you know, and and I know our, our colleagues in city council, you know, they're not putting up billions, not giving some thought to this. Um, so, but as you said, there's a certain formula that they've, that they've been using. And so it's really good to know, like, is this really, is this formula correct? Is this working? So when Founders Row is fully occupied, 
are we seeing the numbers we thought we would see? And if not, then we need to really, really look at these other, and, and just, as you said, Dr. Noon, be better prepared. Um, that it, maybe it's gonna, these billions, what we thought, it's actually gonna yield with more, yield more students than we, than our formula thought was gonna yield. So, so, that's, so that's what you're saying, that they're gonna go back well, and we'll see. Just, we'll take another look, we'll ask again. We, like I said, we've been in touch with the developers, you know, and they, they actually are, you know, even not quickly returning our calls, but they return our calls, you know, and they, you know, and tell us, hey, this is, we don't mind sharing this, this is, you know, they, they, they're being very cooperative in the sense of just sharing it. And so if we think about it, that in terms of, say, February or so you know we talked to them yep we're still on that schedule or no we've had some delays uh, you know there's all sorts of permitting issues and stuff that go through so now we're not thinking that we're going to be open until January mm -hmm. well that's going to be information you guys need to know with that chunk of students mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. they're likely to hit right and you know the only other thing Dr. Noon that I think about too is you know it's all these sort of um, I feel like intangibles, these things that don't, I think, jump out at us. You know, I, I'm thinking that, um, you know, as you get more and more students, it's harder to make the school play. It's harder to make a sports team, you know. And so, I mean, those are going to be kind of the things, the student service side of things, or I guess the student life activities side of things, you know. Down, and this doesn't involve you, but down the road, you know, is it, do we add a new sports team on? Do we maybe do a third player music? You know, that sort of thing, because I think that's going to be some of the, um, you know, we've, we've always prided ourselves in being this little school system, and I think that mindset's going to have to change over the years as, as these numbers start to increase. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point. Thank you for, for saying that. I, um, you know, you look at the out years, for example, at the high school, um, and we, we aren't going to grow so big that we, we'll lose that feel. Um, you know, I, I, often, I often joke uh, that I was the principal of a high school that had more students in it than we have in the city of Falls Church. Um, and at the same time, you know, we still were able to maintain great relationships and kids found their vein uh, of activities and approaches. Um, so I understand what you're saying. I, I, I think we're really committed to making sure that we maintain that small town feel. Um, and our, our teachers do a really nice job of that and our, our staff. But I understand what you're saying. Thank you. Yes, Ms. Silverman. That just reminded me of something, Chair Downs. Um, would this influx of, not influx, but an increase in students, um, how does that affect our ability to change, and I, I don't know the right words to use here, but to change their ability to, um, play different divisions within at high school level so that maybe our students wouldn't have to travel as far. Maybe there, there might be a benefit coming out of this too. Yeah, every two years they do what's called R&R, um, &R, which is uh, it's realignment and I want to say review and realignment. That's not exactly right, but it's something in realignment um, where all of the divisions are looked at based on size. So if we do get to a bigger size, we may go up um, in division. Um, so I think we're up for R and R probably next year. Um, so if we grow by, you know, 100 or 200 students, it could potentially change um, sort of where we fall. But it would take quite a few students because we're still below a thousand, um, and at the high school. And so as long as we're still below a thousand, it's not until we get to 1,300, 1,400 at the high school that we begin to jump up to a different division. So we're still pretty far away from that threshold. I, I think so. I think we're still pretty far away. Um, but there are also choices that we can make to play up. Um, and that's a, that's a conversation for another day. Absolutely. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Ms. Silver. Yes, Dr. Ortiz. 
Thank you. I have, I have two questions. Um, the first has to do with this year's estimates. Um, and when we go back to the variance to actuals, um, you noted, Dr. Noonan, that the um, change is most pronounced at the elementary school. And I want to know if we've sussed out the source of that enrollment projection error, you know, and not to say it was an error, I mean, it's a projection and whatnot, but like, is it, you know, are those students coming from um, rental units? You know, is there a higher, whatever it is, um, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the name of that? Um, generation rate or whatever. Um, generation you know, ratio. Yeah, or, of, yeah. You know, for those units, you know, you know, have we have we figured out like kind of the source of, of, of why that's the case? Or did just more people move in and, you know, that's the way it is? That's so. a great question. Um, so, so two things. First is, um, you, you may recall, um, and for maybe the good of the community, Weldon Cooper Center gave us three projections last year that we could look at. One was sort of a most conservative estimate to one that was maybe pre-pandemic estimate, and then there was one that was sort of up the middle. And we, as I recall, took the up the middle plan, thinking that that was probably where we would land. Um, obviously, that wasn't where we landed. We landed on the pre-pandemic um, line, more likely. Um, but when, we, when we've gone through and looked at the student by dwelling unit, um, which is in your packet of information for this evening, um, what we found in the analysis is that um, most of the students this year are coming from single-family homes. The growth is coming from single-family homes. We don't anticipate, as, um, as was indicated, that that's going to happen every year over year because we do have sort of a landlocked um, space where there's not a lot of <coughs> opportunity to build more single-family homes. What we saw, I think, over the last year is perhaps more construction with some teardown of some smaller houses, larger houses going in, three kids generate from, from that house where maybe there weren't any before. Um, so we are seeing um, that that's where many of the students are coming from uh, in our analysis. Our upcoming year, and, and I haven't actually given you the projection that we're, we're looking at, but I, I will, and I'm not trying to hide the ball, I think we just haven't completely landed on it, but I think for our purposes of planning that we are gonna be somewhere in the neighborhood of, of over the three year span, including this year, and an additional 300 students over three years. So think about it in terms of 100 more students each year. Um, we do anticipate that those students will come from the new mixed-use development. Um, but again, we're, we're ready for it. Okay. Space-wise. Space okay, thank you, Dr. Noonan. Of course. And then I'm looking, this is a question for the, for the Stephen Fuller Institute. Um, I, um, I noted that, you know, you know, going out to 2040, I mean, I don't know if we can really, you know, you know, you know I, don't, I don't want to predict the future, but next year is something we have to plan for and the year afterwards. And this gets, I, th I know that you're working on this, Dr. Noonan, but I, I noted from your charts that, you know, the year over year from the, the September enrollment for 2024 is plus 85 and then plus 146 again the next year. And then it levels out for a few years. Maybe it's a breather, you know, maybe, maybe that'll come to pass or maybe it won't. Um, I, I just want to know, um, do you, you know, obviously, every time you do, whenever you do a projection, there's a there's a kind of a band of uncertainty around that. Can you give a flavor of what the standard deviations are on on that projection? Like it's plus 85 is the mean, plus or minus 
10 or something like that? Like how tight is that projection of the, yours? Uh, the methodology used here is is not based on probabilistic statistics, so there is no margin of error or standard deviation calculated in this, and, that, and that's just because we are looking at the actual data in that one. And so there, these projections are um, they are assuming a fixed state going out and then with the addition of the housing units that are in there. So this is this was not done as a regression analysis or and even that if we use something like uh, exponential smoothing which is a f standard forecasting technique that is actually a non-probabilistic method and does not produce a confidence interval that you would normally think about it. And in this case quite honestly I wouldn't with a smaller community like Falls Church this is the challenge that we have when we're doing um, housing market projections in this region. We get to even the size of Arlington and the numbers are just all over the place. Huge variations from month to month just based on what properties happen to sell, how many are available, the pay and all of that. And so it would be if we had, I will tell you this, without doing a math exercise on it, the variation and the potential would be pretty high for what we're doing. And it's just off of a small base. Remember, if you guys, if you guys were a 20,000 student, we'd have a lot more confidence in what next year's numbers is, just because it would be a much more moving than, than a few number of students doesn't move the needle overall. Here, a relatively small group of students really moves the needle for you guys. Okay, so just to, maybe to, to turn my question around, if we were, if, Dr. and his team are trying to come up with ranges to plan towards. It really boils down to, um, uh, you know, when certain units complete as well as um, the generation rates. Yeah. The way we've expressed it in the numbers that we pr that we provided, and if you don't mind, I'll put that uh, that slide back up. Oh, I'm sorry. If you don't, that's okay. I don't want to cause trouble. No, you're not. If we go back just a couple of slides to that chart, what I would tell you is that we're pretty, we feel, whoops, no, not gonna do it, that's okay. That, that gray line and the orange line that were up top, not the Weldon Cooper line, that's, that's the bound. That's, I think that's a pretty reasonable upper and lower bound. Maybe it tweaks down a little bit, but I think that that is, and what's that doing is just saying we're allowing that, that probability of, the possibility, I should say, of having these students that disappeared after 2018-19 reappear. Okay, very good. Thank the, you. The scary part of that is the step function that was indicated. The the width between that is 200 students. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think I think you, to your point, Dr. Ortiz, you're right. I think that's the that's why we need to be paying very close attention to what's coming online and mm -hmm. when. And I think being able to come back later. Uh, with the Stephen Fuller Institute to look at those yield ratios to determine whether or not they were right. Was the 0.21 year yield ratio for those um, mini units right? Or was it more like a 0.15 or was it a 0.3? I think that would be, that'll be really useful. And we'll stay, you know, one of the things that um, uh, Ms. Michael and I have, have worked really hard to do is to, we didn't have a staff reserve. Um, in the past, um, but about three years ago, we put a staffing reserve into the budget so that if there was a need, we could respond to it quickly. And, and that's kind of what I think we're going to have to do into the future. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. Yes, Ms. Tice. Uh, thank you, Dr. Noonan. You really uh, read, was read, you were reading my mind on the um, 
on the topic of the single family dwelling homes and the turnover in them. And I'm wondering, you know, two thirds of our students roughly live in single family dwellings. And as we see, all see, I'm sure in our neighborhoods that these, you know, small ramblers with empty nesters are being turned down and big new construction with three, four or five kids are being, are moving in. So uh, how, how is that sort of, how is that data incorporated into the projections? I know that must be. It just winds up being a part of your current contribution rates that you see out of the single family homes. And, and, and it's one of something that we need to see. The real issue there is how often, I mean, we can get, you know, it's, it's not the anecdote, but how many of those are happening? And, you know, and in the pace of those, and some of that is, you know, how much of it is, you know, the permits are issued on it. So that's certainly something that we've thought about. Um, it's a little bit harder in this in this market just because, you know, at mortgage rates at 8% and a construction loan now is above 10%. So there is a little bit of market pressure pushing that down. Hopefully for all of us, we're not going to see those kind of mortgage rates continue for much longer, but they certainly are going to stay elevated. I think some of what you're seeing in this as much as anything is the lack of housing supply that we have. If you're a young family living in Falls Church, and your kids are aging up into school age and you've been in an apartment or a smaller condo, you normally the process would be, we're gonna move up into single family home, a two or three, you know, three or four bedroom home. And simply there's no inventory to speak of on, on average, right? And so I think that we're seeing some, some capping of what's gonna happen just because there's not a lot of movement. And then for now, you talk about people that have those homes say, an empty nester who is thinking about moving, are they going to want to move someplace if it's more expensive or something? And all of, they sell out here, but you know, do they have to take on a mortgage? I'm not sure. Of course, the other factor is right now part of the reason housing uh, units are so the inventory drops so much. Who wants to leave a three percent mortgage? Right. No, I understand that. I'm just when we look at 25 years of of projections. You know, I have three houses on my street. The three Ramblers being torn down at like right now yep. with all the signs and construction going. So how does that factor in for the long term? I mean, yeah, and, when it says the, only one or two coming on per year. Right. The, and it will, it will over time, it will make that contribution rate for that particular housing type. It, it will cause it to increase. Uh, and, I, and I think it will matter. I don't think it's going to be enough of a jump yet to, to worry about. And, and, certain, and when I'm talking about the, the near term, and I do not see that conversion rate getting enough that it says, oh, we need it instead of needing a new high school in 2040, we need one in 2030. It's not going to be that kind of numbers. Oh, sure, sure. Right. Ms. Tice, can I jump on that question? And this is for Dr. Noon. Um, so when I, um, your predecessor, when I was in a meeting you know, a long time ago, um, it was said to me that one of the ways to look at that is if you look at the number of lots in the city where the land is worth more than the houses, and that's where you figure out those are your teardowns. So I don't know, do we do any kind of keeping up with those numbers? We do keep up with those numbers. Um, and I, I asked for it last year from the general government, and I, I did get um, some information. We can go back and look at it again. I think the challenge that we're gonna face picking up on this conversation is we're seeing three and four bedroom houses being torn down. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there are two on uh, the walk that I take with my dog every day, uh, where these are houses when we were in the market, I, I was like, oh, I wish that was on the market. We would have moved in there, and now mm -hmm. somebody bought it, and they're tearing it down. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be a challenge for us as well going forward. The good news there is if it's a three or four bedroom, they probably generated two or three kids. Mm -hmm. And if they put another two or three bedroom, or four bedroom on there, or five bedroom on there, probably the generation's pretty close. But um, we were able to get an inventory and I, I don't know necessarily, Chair Downs, if it was exactly what you're asking for, where the house was worth less than the property. Mm -hmm. um, but what we were able to get was an inventory of those uh, sort of traditional brick cape cods and how many of those were left that potentially could be could be taken down. So uh, we can we can certainly yeah, look, in, a, look into it. Be interesting, I think, to yeah. follow. Thank you, Ms. Tyson. I jumped in. Did you have any other? Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Well, this is this this is our statistics guy right here. So he's and he seems satisfied. So that's that's kudos to you. So um, any anyone else? I, I would just like to make one yes, last please, comment. Please. And since Kristen is on on here. Um, this is really oh, yes. Kristen's presentation this evening, um, so thank you so much for, for pulling this together, Ms. Michael. Unfortunately, um, she has a cough, so I, I drew the straw tonight and got to present Kristen's work. So thank you for, <laughs> for pulling it all together, Kristen. Yes, th thank you, Dr. Noon. I was remiss, Ms. Michael, in not thanking you because I, I heard that you've worked really hard on this, as you always do. Um, so thank you so much uh, for, your, for your work on this. And Dr. Dimmick, any, are you good? Any questions from you? I guess if I could ask one question, this is perhaps more for Dr. Noonan. Um, could you remind us, is it next? We have to decide on a number before you build the budget. Am I remembering that correctly? And, and my guess is that that is before we would have any sort of updated information in the new year from what is happening with the, with the new buildings. That, that is correct. We, we will land on a number by our December 4th um, date with our counterparts, um, and we're going to use the data that's been shared with you tonight to determine what that is. Um, the good news is it's a projection. Um, it's not the, this is exactly how many kids are going to come, but it does give us a good sense of what things are going to look like based on the inventory that's coming online. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. We're happy that you skipped the skipped the class and come and presented to us. It's very informative, and I know we were all uh, waiting anxiously or, or with great anticipation uh, for this presentation. So thank you very much. It was really helpful for all of us, especially as we get ready for budget season. Thank you. And Ms. Michael, thank you again for all that work. I know you did behind the scenes, and we hope you, you feel better. <laughs> okay. We are now at uh, section four, public comments and requests. In accordance with school board policy BDDH, the time for each speaker is limited to three minutes. Additional written statements may be submitted to the clerk for dissemination to board members and for the record. And Ms. Goodell, I do not believe we have any speakers this evening, is uh, that right? No, we do not have speakers, but we did have three written public comments for the record. Okay, thank you. Three written uh, comments for the record. Thank you so much. Okay, we're now at 5.01, closed meeting. Someone could read us into closed. Dr. Dimmick, do you want to read us into closed? Kate gestured, I mean, Vice Chair Gould gestured, so to the Zoom, to the screen. You only have a few more left of these. So. 
Can she do it? Okay. Okay, Dr. Anderson's going to do it. Pursuant to the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, I move that the board convene a closed meeting for the following purpose to discuss or consider the identified subject matter, personnel under section 2.2-3711A1 in particular, staff appointments, staff reassignments, staff resignations, staff retirements, staff performance, staff change in position, staff separation, dependent care leave, long-term medical leave, child care leave requests and leave absence, and student matters under section 2.2-3711A2 in particular, student residency. Thank you. Could I have a second? Thank you, Vice Chair Gould. All those in favor say yes. Yes. All those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries. We'll move into, into close. I, uh, 10 minutes or so, you think? Maybe the shortest one on record. Okay. We'll well, I like the sound of that. All right. We'll be back. Thank you. Okay. Welcome back. We're at 5.03. We're going to reconvene to open. Uh, if someone could make a motion to reconvene to open. Chair, I move that we reconvene to open. Could I have a second? Second. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. All those in favor say yes. Yes. All those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries. We're at, God bless you, uh, Ms. Silverman. We're at 6.01. Uh, certified the closed meeting. Dr. Dimmick, you have your headphones, your, your, your AirPods. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. Um, whereas the Falls Church City School Board has convened a closed meeting on this date pursuant to an affirmative recorded vote and in accordance with the provisions of the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, and whereas Section 2.2-3711B of the Code of Virginia requires a certification by this school board that such closed meeting was conducted in conformity with Virginia law. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the Falls Church City School Board hereby certifies that, to the best of each member's knowledge, only public business matters lawfully exempted from open meeting requirement by Virginia law were discussed in the closed meeting to which this certification applies, and only such business matters as were identified in the motion convening the closed meeting were heard, discussed, or considered. Thank you. Could I have a second, please? Thank you, Ms. Tice. Uh, Ms. Goodell, could you please take the roll? Yes. Uh, Dr. Anderson? Yes. Dr. Dimmick? Yes. Ms. Downs? Yes. Dr. Gould? Yes. Dr. Ortiz? Yes. Ms. Silverman? Yes. And Ms. Tice? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. We're now at the consent agenda, and uh, you'll see we have personnel items, advisory committee appointments, extended daycare advisory committee charge, and that's our consent agenda. We're at 7.04. I'd like to ask for unanimous consent and seeing no objections, the consent agenda is approved. Okay, we're now going to go on to 8.01, school start times and early, early release Wednesdays. And I'll just uh, get us started uh, this evening to uh, sort of give some background and, and uh, context to where we are in this process uh, for those listening in tonight. Uh, we began this discussion in the spring. And uh, the reason that these two topics have come uh, to the school board is the first is uh, early release uh, came to us because um, we had, uh, over the years, we had heard um, from parents um, sending us letters that could we re-examine re uh, early release that surrounding school systems no longer had it and working parents find it difficult uh, to navigate. And so uh, knowing that it has been um, tough on some parents, but on the flip side, knowing that it's also a great benefit for our teachers because uh, they use it for, they use early release Wednesdays for professional development and meetings, not just 
uh, grade-wise, which what happens on a, on a regular basis during planning time, what's different about early release Wednesdays is they can meet vertically, so they can meet across grade levels. So, you know, looking at that, um, there are two sides to this to this piece. We thought it was really worth exploring, and, and I know Ms. Silverman officially brought it as an suggested it as an agenda item a while back. So, uh, we began that discussion in spring, and along with that topic, we also began talking about looking at starting uh, the secondary campus later. And that the reason we began talking about that was the Health and Wellness Committee, which is a school board advisory committee, brought that to our attention and cited a lot of research, uh, particularly from the Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics, that an 8.30 start time was really the gold standard for secondary campus. So that's uh, why both of these um, topics came on our radar. We began discussing them in the spring, and we decided to wait until the fall, and that's where we are in the process right now. We've had uh, 10 town halls, and we've met with parents at uh, several different locations, including um, during the weekend at the community center. We've met from with staff from each school. Uh, we'd all, we have also had a student town hall and an ESOL, uh, sorry, a town hall with our um, English language learning community. And so I wanted to just, um, the uh, town hall with the students as well as our ESOL town hall happened after our last meeting. So we did want to do a quick summary of that. And I did want to thank our student rep, Sean Lewin, and uh, Vice Chair Gould. They worked behind the scenes to get that, um, get the student town hall organized. And I know, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Lewin was, was ill the day we did that. Um, town hall, but I did want to just um, do a very high-level uh, summary of that uh, meeting with the students. And we really primarily talked about uh, start times and starting the school day at 8.30. And generally, there was support. I think we heard from a lot of students about uh, it affecting after-school activities, particularly athletics, and, you know, if students are in band or, or plays, that sort of thing. Um, I did remind the students, and because when we brought up this topic in the spring, we had talked about an 8.30 start and a 3.30 end, which uh, I think was would be difficult for athletics and difficult for any kind of, you know, any really any after-school activity for a number of reasons. And so since that time, and, and I did um, let the students know that what we were really considering this time around was an 8.30 start time with a 3.10 end time. And that would mean a 15-minute uh, shorter day. The 3.10 end time does, um, does, does not impact activities as much. It is just a 10-minute uh, difference from, from the current 3 o'clock. And I did explain to the students that those 15 minutes would really be how those 15 minutes are carved out of the day would really be determined by Mr. Laub, and I'm sure he'll ask for feedback from the students. Uh, the students were very clear that they did not want any um, time taken out of Mustang Block. That was their number one priority. Uh, several students talked about not wanting it to be carved out, out of academics either, but I think we heard loud and clear from many students that they did not want uh, Mustang Block affected. And for those who aren't aware, Mustang Block is something that um, students can use for orga student organization meetings. They can go meet with, um, with uh, teachers and get extra help. It's just really a, a great resource for students. They can do homeworks. So it's just a lot of, um, it's a very flexible time for students and they value that. 
And uh, another uh, theme that came up during that meeting was uh, with the students is that they wanted to be sure that coaches, you know, if we were to start at 8.30, that they wouldn't all of a sudden see more and more teams practicing before school because school is starting later. So um, I don't know if anyone, and I'll open it up to if anyone on the school board had any, did any other themes come out that I didn't mention, if anyone has anything? Okay. Um, Mr. Lewin, did you want to add anything? Um, a lot of what I have written down echoes a lot of what you just mentioned, but I think, um, as we all know, the mental health and well-being of students um, is crucial to their success in and out of the classroom. And by having these additional short Wednesdays every month, students would have more time to take care of themselves and de-stress from the, from the stressful school week. Um, this would ultimately lead to a more successful and productive um, student body. And personally, some of my happiest memories from, uh, in terms of social engagement were a result of these short Wednesdays. Um, getting to walk home with friends, get outside, socialize, and form these critical connections that would persist throughout my time at the secondary campus is something that I would love to amplify by adding additional short Wednesdays. And I've heard from students that um, as far as the start times for the secondary campus, while the student body is relatively split on whether or not that they would want to change the start times, I believe that the emphasis for students is again placed on the end times of the school days remaining at a constant. Um, as you've more than likely been informed in community town hall discussions and through parent advocacy, um, I've also been informed by my own peers that this is specifically important for the secondary campus where students play competitive sports or have demanding extracurriculars that involve communal groups that prefer to begin their activities immediately following 3 p.m. But in general, by keeping the current end time or some, something very close to it, like 310, um, we ensure that students have enough time to participate in their extracurriculars without sacrificing their own academic success. Um, so yeah, I think it's very similar to what you were already talking about, but thank you. Okay, thank you, Mr. And so just to be clear, I, I focused more on start times. So in terms of early release Wednesdays, you're advocating for additional early release Wednesdays, is that right? That seems to be like the absolute overwhelming answer I've gotten from students. I think it's just like a very, um, like students, just, it's like a goalpost that they just look forward to. And it's just like, it's something that, they feel as though they can use to their own advantage to plan for their own academic success in a more beneficial way. Like I know so many students go to the libraries on short Wednesdays and study for upcoming exams or things of that nature, or they meet with clubs. I know for when I was in like theater productions, we used those to our advantage um, and we had longer rehearsals as our production came up um, to a closer date. But, and also in terms of teachers, I think students I've heard, they've expressed the um, notion that they would like teachers to have more like time to plan, especially when it comes to these higher level IB courses. They feel giving these teachers this longer period of time to plan for these lessons and these upcoming exams and things of that nature allows them to have a better education and preparation for themselves as students. Um, and yeah, just giving the teachers more time to grade assignments and give students feedback at a quicker rate is also very helpful and I've experienced just long delays as a student just because teachers are kind of overwhelmed um, by these like very demanding curriculum um, that the IB provides for them but I think they they focus more on how they would benefit um, in terms of early release Wednesdays but I've heard a few comments on how they would feel as though teachers could benefit and then in turn reflect and give them 
more benefits as well. Okay, great. Thank you, Mr. Loon. Any questions or comments for our student rep? Okay, thank you very much. And then um, the next piece is I wanted, um, I asked Vice Chair Gould, he was able to attend, I, unfortunately I was not um, able to attend, but the um, community forum with our um, families with who are um, English language learners. So if you wanted to talk about that. Yes, I can. Um, and I'm gonna also rely on uh, Dr. Anderson, who was in attendance, and also Dr. David Ortiz, who provided uh, most of the translation for, for the event, along with our former school board member, uh, Dr. Sonia Ruiz-Bolanos, who was very helpful in organizing and outreach. Um, the feedback that we heard, um, specifically around early release Wednesday, um, it, early release Wednesdays are difficult for those families, um, as expected from a uh, planning uh, there was the feedback that we received was um, the inconsistency from their perspective about when those are scheduled. Uh, it's difficult for, uh, for them to know. There used to be a text chain with the parent liaison about when those happen, um, and, and that hasn't seemed to be happening, so it's difficult for them to know when those are uh, happening. That was one of the feedbacks on earliest Wednesday. Um, they also talked about the, um, uh, the bus pickup. They said if there was going to be childcare options, ideally that bus pickup would happen. Um, it would be difficult for, for traveling to the, um, to the, uh, the school to pick up their kids. Um, we did have a number, I should say, we did have a number of families turn out, so it was great, um, and, and a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, some of the other uh, I, feedback that we got, we asked about the alignment of secondary with the elementary to make sure if that's lined up. And Interestingly, the feedback that we got, uh, that is not a priority. Um, the pickup was the childcare option that at least the families that came, um, there's usually a parent that picks up three or four kids. It's not the secondary uh, siblings that are taken care of, so that wasn't a priority. Um, the, the feedback that uh, around all of this was um, uh, for childcare options, if we were gonna run the childcare options, we talked about different <coughs> models, and they all wholly recommended I'm, I'm looking at uh, Dr. Ortiz here, to have the registration for childcare happen when you register for school, for classes, or for schools. Um, they said it would be very difficult for families to know how to register for any options outside of that registration window. Um, and they pointed to, and Dr. Newman probably know best, they pointed to, I think there was a registration event at some of the apartments, and they said that was very helpful for not knowing just what school, but also the different activities and things like that. Um, Finally, we asked about different communication around how this could work in terms of getting uh, connections and overwhelmingly, they said a significant number of messages um, are not in Spanish and so it's hard to understand uh, what's going on. We show, we talked about like PTA and a lot of the PTA events. There was one parent that was on the PTA, but most of the PTA announcements are not in Spanish. So it was hard to understand what activities were going through. Um, text messages are not, uh, are not mostly in Spanish. So what they rely on is the parent liaison to have that connection or that communication. Um, and, uh, and obviously uh, a lot of their, they said their, um, uh, emails are tough, the number of emails that are not in Spanish to keep up with what's going on. So I will turn to Dr. Ortiz to add, I'm sure I missed some since he was um, the translator. So I think, um, <clears throat> let me offer a couple of kind of bottom line items. Thank you for, uh, for, for all of that. One is that fundamentally, um, early release Wednesdays are profoundly difficult for these families um, in terms of managing um, child care 
as well as just sorting out the details of it because you know there is a little bit of inconsistency here and there with that. Um, and so I think it's a it, 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 in, in aggregate a tremendous burden. Um, and then furthermore, um, I think a lot of there's there's you know, so that's one regarding this particular topic. And then generally speaking, there's a there's a, a tremendous need for um, uh, I'll just call them like retail services to to keep things moving along, both in terms of communication as well as in assistance with navigating various aspects of the schools that goes, you know, anything from registration to working with counselors to even sorting out IB issues, you know, which is tough enough, I think, for every family that's had to do it in English um, and to have to do it and work through that in another language is tremendously difficult. So those are two different things. But um, any kind of activity or anything that any solution would have to take into account the extra additional transaction um, requirements that would be needed to support those families. Thank you so much, Vice Chair Gould and uh, Dr. Ortiz. Thank you again for hosting that, that town hall and for, for the summary. Uh, so just to uh, remind um, those who are listening that we, we did develop a timeline and in that original timeline we um, talked about making a decision in November and so um, after talking to the school board members it does seem that four of us are aligned on both um, early release and start times. However, there are three members that are still have some questions and other suggestions for consideration. So I just, I wanted to put that out there that we, are, we won't be making any kind of decision, definitive decision this evening. Um, we're gonna have another discussion uh, tonight, but we're gonna keep the discussion tonight more high level. Um, at our last meeting, we went into uh, very great detail about all the different feedback we received from all the different town halls and the emails. And so we're not going to go over that all again tonight. And I'd encourage community members to uh, watch that discussion. It was our last meeting. They can watch it um, on our YouTube channel. So if, if they do want to watch that. But for tonight, um, we're going to really talk about where each of us is in our decision making process. And so I um, am going to just, I don't usually kick it off, but I am going to kick it off. Um, and then we'll have, everyone will have a time to um, give their thoughts. Um, so in terms of start times, I do think, um, and this is me speaking personally, I'm not speaking on behalf of the board, uh, an 8.30 start time and a 3.10 end time at the secondary level makes sense to me. It does give our students um, some extra time to sleep in. I don't think a 10 minute later end time impacts, uh, will impact after school activities very much. Um, you know, I'd just like to, I know that the 15 minutes um, that are be, is gonna be pulled out of the, the day um, would just suggest that maybe we look at passing times or maybe stable group, but I, that's of course being left to the principals. Um, in terms of early release, uh, obviously this is a tougher one and um, you know, I, I have to say I, w I was um, somewhat surprised. Um, we did not get a whole uh, lot of uh, emails. Um, and I did correspond with some parents who felt like, um, you know, they it was hard for them maybe when they went, they didn't go to the townhouse because that was a little bit maybe intimidating to say they did not support early release Wednesdays. But on the other hand, you know, we, we just have not received many emails um, 
from community members who asked us um, to do away with them, um, and at least not in great number. Um, so, you know, during these these meetings, it really, I think, what was what really came clear to me became clear to me is that the teachers obviously really valued these early release Wednesdays between the professional development and again not just meeting grade-wise level, but meeting vertically, so with all the different grades can meet together. I know that um, we, Dr. Um, Gould and I, after meeting with Mount Daniel, Opera came out and talked to us and said that if the early release Wednesday is really the only time that he's able to talk with uh, teachers about his special education students, because as a parent, he doesn't have planning time. And this is really it. If we were to take early release Wednesdays away, he wouldn't have that time. And I, and I did, um, I'm sorry, this is a little disorganized, but I did just recently attend the Special Education Advisory Committee, um, and Ms. Tice couldn't attend that, that evening. And um, I will say that the, um, the advisory committee, um, Though they acknowledge it's, it's difficult sometimes for for parents who have children with special needs to find childcare, they were so supportive of the teachers and the special education teachers, and were very concerned as a group about getting rid of early release Wednesdays because that is really when a lot of special education support work happens in terms of IEP meetings. And so I did want to throw that out there. I'm sorry I should have done it earlier in this conversation, but. Um, as a group, they they did they were concerned about you know losing the early release Wednesdays and not having that support for for uh, special education teachers. Um, so a couple other things, and I'll wrap it up and, and pass it on to whoever wants to talk next. Um, the other piece that drives home this morning, we were just meeting again with Arlington um, Public Schools and Alexandria City Schools, and again talking about critical teacher shortage. Um, I just, you know, and we've had a little bit of that problem at Oak Street this year with teachers, and I just, um, this is, to me, this is not the time to be cutting back on um, support mechanisms for our teachers. It's just, uh, teacher shortage is just too critical. And I've also said to many community members, you know, I know it's, I completely understand that this is a burden. We just heard it from Dr. Ortiz for our ESOL community. Um, you know, parents who are either single parents or both working parents, we don't have, um, we have some childcare options, um, but we probably need to expand that. And I think, you know, as I've said before, I think both things are true. This is a burden on parents, not all parents, but many parents, but this is also a great benefit to our teachers. So I would, uh, long story short, I would suggest that we keep early release as it is. This is just, again, me not speaking for the board. Um, I think Mr. Lewin uh, makes some great points and maybe there's some flexibility to add a day or two uh, at the secondary level, especially those months like Mar like the infamous March month where there's no breaks, um, maybe we add a, a, an extra day or two at the secondary level with with plenty of notice for families in advance. Um, and then I guess my only other I guess suggestion would be that we centralize our childcare options. I think that's one thing we heard um, during these town halls. It's it's hard to find you know. Parks and Rec offer something, Baruti offer something, Falls Church City offer, you know, so is there a way that maybe, you know, we could provide this service to the community that there's one clearinghouse with different, you know, different childcare options on Wednesdays. And so I think, you know, trying to beef up that, you know, and it's probably a combination of working with um, Parks and Rec and Katie Clinton, our, our childcare director, 
our daycare director, and also the PTAs. You know, can they work more with Baruti camps and offer more options? So I think um, it, it is a support for our teachers, but again, I do understand that this is um, tough on, on many families. So I, I'm not, um, I want to acknowledge that. So that, that's just my thoughts. And who would like to, to talk next? Yeah, I know someone that's, yes, Ms. Tice. Yes. Um, okay, thank you. I, I tend to, to think a lot of the, of the same things as, as Chair Downs, but I will say in terms of the uh, start times, well, in both of these decisions, really, I think, you know, where the goal here is to, is to think of students and, teach, and, and teachers by, um, as they support students. So it has to be sort of student first. And uh, when I think about the start times, I just do not see any um, significant negatives by changing um, from to an 8.30 to a 3.10 schedule. Uh, we can, you know, we can debate on how, on the, on the impact from a mental health perspective and the data seems very clear, but it, there's certainly not any data that it's going to be harmful. Um, and all the data suggests that it would be beneficial. Um, and so I would fully support a change in those start times. I do think, uh, you know, the academic day is mandatory and within our purview. Um, so when we think about the impact on sports or the before school, the after school, and those sorts of things, I think those are more flexible and they're less within our purview as a school board member. So I feel like my, my job is to think about the students and the academic day, um, which is why I would support this and um, the potential benefits for student health. Uh, I also would um, strongly support an alignment of the at the elementary school level, whether it's um, whether or not it's exactly the same schedule, that it would at least be the same duration. Um, I do feel like we we heard um, some very reasonable feedback on on how it didn't seem equitable that the that the duration of the elementary school's school student day might be a 10 to 10 minute difference. So I would like to see an updated version of, of the plan with those in alignment, either, like I said, at least with duration, if not exact times. Um, in terms of the early release Wednesday, I came into the to that conversation with a pretty open mind. I did not think that childcare needed to be the driving force of the decision because I feel like that is secondary. I feel like there are a lot of ways we can be creative um, and work together as a community. And it just, again, when you're putting students and teachers first, like that just wasn't um, my top priority. I fully recognize uh, the challenges, but I think that is a separate conversation that we can continue to work on. And I know there's, we've had a lot of conversations on the creative ways uh, we can support families who have trouble with that and something we can continue to do. Uh, so I was more interested in the student and teacher perspective from the early release Wednesday's conversation. And I was curious to, to, to hear from teachers on, and it wasn't obvious to me that it was going to be their preferred uh, schedule. You know, I could have predict, I mean, I could have seen them saying, and we wanted more continuity of instruction, or we want like longer full day planning days and professional development opportunities. And so I thought it was incredibly valuable that the teachers engaged with the conversation so clearly and at the preschool and at the elementary level in such a uniform manner. I, to me, it seemed completely obvious. And I wish the teachers could have heard how many times, to Chair Down's point, how many times parents said, that is a huge burden, it is a huge inconvenience, but please don't get rid of it because we want to support our teachers. Uh, and I just thought that was a really powerful message too that I wish more of our teachers could have heard um, how much the parents were championing them and wanting to do whatever it took to support those teachers. So that I felt like was really powerful. Um, I'm still a little bit conflicted on the secondary uh, 
on the secondary piece for early release Wednesdays because I don't feel like we've had as as uniform a message from that community, students and teachers. Uh, so I would, based on the feedback we've gotten, be more inclined to keep it as is. Um, but I do, I probably that's where I remain the most flexible. But in general, I support the, early, the change in start times and I would be supportive of keeping the early release Wednesdays as it is. Thank you, Ms. Tice. Anyone else? Yes, Ms. Silverman. I'll go. Oh, sorry. Okay, Dr. Dimmick, go ahead. Okay, um, I, I guess I'll just build on what Chair Down said and what Ms. Tice said. Um, I'm supportive of the, of the later start time for the secondary campus. I think um, I'm also, I would be okay with some wiggle room in there if we needed to for the buses, like if we if we needed to make it 8:20 to make the buses work or to adjust with elementary school, but I do think um, sleep is valuable. There's a lot of research, um, and I'm supportive of a later start time there. Um, for early release, I think um, I think our teachers really were very uniform at elementary level of, of how important that is to them and what they use it for, um, and I I think that if we're going to treat our um, teachers as the professionals they are, um, they've demonstrated that this is a very useful time for professional development, horizontal planning, as well as vertical planning, and for those um, the IEP meetings that need to happen and all of that communication. Um, I am supportive of keeping the early release as it is. I We did hear from parents um, some some parents have some confusion of what days we're having early release, um, but it is on our calendar, on our website, and it's there all year long. Um, so I think we're very clear on what days that we have early release. Um, so I'm supportive of keeping the early release for the elementary. For secondary, I think we've, we've asked a lot for input from our secondary campus on what the staff feel about early release, and I think we really haven't heard from them, which suggests to me that additional early release is not um, critical for our staff at the secondary campus. I think we would have heard from them if it was important to them. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Dr. Demick. Yes, Dr. Ortiz. Okay. Um, thank you, Chair Downs. Um, I'm going to actually disagree. Um, at least prevent, present my opinion. First, let me go through um, a couple of things that I think haven't been said about what we've heard. One is that at Jesse Thackeray, my, I didn't make that, but I understand that um, they expressed a desire, they, they expressed that early release Wednesdays weren't actually particularly necessary and that they would prefer some other changes to the schedule and I can't represent exactly what those were. <clears throat> so that's one, uh, one piece of the puzzle. <clears throat> I think I'd like to put a little bit of color on the Oak Street and Mount Daniel feedback. Um, the primary planning that we heard was what Dr. Noonan has told us is north-south planning, um, which is the paraprofessionals working with the grade level teachers or math teachers across grades or, or, or what have you. So, um, uh, and, and, you know, and that's not structured into the day, and it's actually pretty difficult to structure into the day generally. Right. So, um, and um, and I think the other thing that we heard is, you know, one thing you could say is, I think this goes to to Miss Tice's point. Um, 
you know, well, you could say, well, we can have like, um, yeah, I don't know, like a quarterly or bi-monthly um, full day or a couple full days or something like that of training. And, and what we heard was, no, actually, we need to have these meetings pretty regularly, right? You know, I think that was that was what we've heard in order to, to be able to coordinate effectively. Um, and then, so we heard that. Um, and then we spent a lot of time, and then we heard a lot of um, feedback and support of that from families, and I appreciate that. Um, but what, and, and we started to, we didn't solve these problems. We started to think through potential options for how to manage childcare, and, and that's a that's a huge logistical thing. And we, you know, we're not pretending to solve that here. Just you know, acknowledging that's the case. Um, but I think the the piece that we didn't do is say, hey, well, can we actually roll up our sleeves and think, is there a way for us to make this part of the day, right? You know, like you go to. Um, and um, and then we haven't, you know, and I, don't, I haven't heard a, a solution to that. And I don't know if there is one, right? Um, and, and I think the reason why is to me, oh, and then before, before we go on, so that was, that was you know, we just, we, we, those, that's a discussion we haven't had. Um, um, and, um, and, and I'm not saying that that would be an easy thing to do. Um, um, but I also probably think that like figuring out ways to to manage like additional child care is probably also not an easy thing to do either. So I don't want to you know put one degree of difficulty over the next. And then we heard um, I think a couple of salient points regarding the early release at the secondary level is the days get compressed, and given the way that our teaching is structured, it's really hard for teachers to make any kind of educational impact on those days. So yeah, it's great to like have the afternoon off, but you can, don't have, you know, you can't run through, <laughs> you can't run through a real lesson in that time, um, especially the way that we, we've done things. So it's been particularly difficult. That's not to say that monthly doesn't make sense for other reasons. Um, so that's on the, on the early release. So let me just say, well, you know, kind of what I'm thinking on that and I'll turn to the start times. Um, I, I have to emphasize that this is really an issue of equity to me, I think a lot of families, you know, we've heard from a lot of families and we're a very, very wealthy town, um, they can manage this, right? Oh, you know, we figured out a way, we can figure this out, you know, there's, you know, um, there's families who can't and whose kids, you know, just come home and stare at a screen or, you know, really don't get supervised and um, that's not good for those kids. And, um, you know, and, you know, and it's, it's useful that their teachers are, are, are thinking about them. But, you know, this is, you know, this is, this is tough. And, and um, it's something that I would like to see us. I don't think that we're in a position, given what we know, to make a change for the next year. But I would like us to, to, to start thinking about a glide path to not having them. Like, and, and, and making that pretty clear. And I don't know if it's the 25, 26 school year, the 26, 27 school year, but sometime for us to work through various issues, you know, this issue, you know, the issues, and come up with a glide path to, to, to make these go away. So I wouldn't be supportive of endorsing, um, maintaining them in, 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 in the current form in, ad infinitum. Um, uh, regarding the, um, the, the start times, the way that it's been structured is that just because of transportation issues is that it would actually push the elementary times a little bit later. I know that our neighboring jurisdictions have later elementary start times. Again, families would adapt. I'll just tell you personally, when Oak Street moved from an 840 start to an 850 start, I almost lost my head because I had, you know, like staff meetings that I needed to move around and stuff like that. And I did, but um, 
you know, I think it's just, just shifting things even a little bit, especially at the beginning of the day, can be a real challenge for working families. And so I, I think that given the constraints around us moving people, um, I don't think that I, I, I'm really, I can't be in favor of moving to 830. And I think Dr. Dimmick said, well, I could we go to 820. I'm also wary of trying to just cut time. You know, I know that some students don't really think stable block is super effective, but other students really, really use it. And it's an important part of how we structure the way that we provide a whole curriculum to our students. And so I, you know, you know, not to say that, you know, the days aren't malleable, you might have to change them for whatever reason, but um, I'm really not in favor of cutting the day and the, and, the, and, the, and the minutes, and therefore, you know, I think if we can figure out a way to shift the start time five minutes or 10 minutes just to gain an incremental benefit, I'd be in favor of that, but moving it to 8.30, um, you know, given the changes that's been proposed, I can't be in favor of because of the burden that it will place on the elementary families. So that's what I'm thinking. Um, you know, I think it's a little different than, than, than we all thinking. It's just the way that I've kind of parsed the, the inputs. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. Um, one question I had as a follow-up. You talked about a glide path. One of the options Dr. Noonan um, offered was um, a model where we would go down to basically two a month, give or take, and the whole system would be aligned. Um, so you would be reducing those early release Wednesdays. Is that when you think when you talk about glide path, what why would you not consider not why would you not, but would you consider that as a glide path? No, I, I don't think so. Um, and and the reason why is the following is I think um, well actually no let's put it like this. Yes, absolutely that's a glide path. You know, um, I agree with that. But I think what we heard is that you know, if you have them all the time, it's one thing, right? You know, it's a burden, but it, like, you know, you have a little bit of a, you know, at least it's, at least it's something you can plan around. Like, on, hey, on Wednesdays, I need this help. You know, if it's every other week or if it shifts because of holidays and this other stuff, you know, that just gets really confusing. You know, I mean, I, I you know, I, I get confused even with the, the monthly at the secondary campus and like it's been on the calendar for a year. So, you know, and, and I should be paying attention. So, you know, I think it's just having... The, the, the less frequent they are, I think almost the more disruptive they are. Okay. Ms. Silverman. Thank you, Chair Downs. Um, I'm going to first address the start times, if I may. Um, I agree with Dr. Ortiz that um, any shift in, in, in start times should not affect the elementary schools. Um, so I'm all, actually all in favor of an 8.30 start time if that would not affect the elementary school. And I would leave that to um, school administrators and, and operations to figure out if that was possible. If an 8.30 start time does not affect the elementary schools, then I would be in favor of that, in addition to ensuring that no academics are cut either. Um, one thing I, it's interesting, one thing I learned while I was shadowing um, the, just for the public to know, the school board members shadowed um, different school administrators a week or two ago. Um, I learned that there was a six-minute passing period um, at the middle and, uh, and high school. And one thing that was said was six minutes is needed because the time that for some students to get from one campus to the other. While it might not be every student that has to make that longer distance travel, some students do need that full six minutes. So 
that is something to take into consideration. I would not be in favor of cutting academics. So the question is, where do you cut? I don't know. Um, you know, so again, I, I really want our students to have all the sleep that they possibly can without affecting elementary and ensuring that academics are not affected and ensuring that kids actually can get to class on time is also, you know, taken into consideration. Um, as far as early release goes, um, we did hear loud and clearly from the elementary teachers that this is something valuable, and I heard that also. Um, I think that many families in our um, in our neighborhoods have also really stated how valuable the early release is for the teachers, and they want to support the teachers. And I heard that. Um, however, um, along with what Dr. Ortiz said, I, I agree. This is a matter of equity, and um, what one parent said is, you know, this is one of the most inequitable policies that I can think of a school system having. You know, um, allowing, you know, having uh, some students sitting at home on an iPad and other students possibly getting extracurricular activities, getting enrichment activities, and that just, you know, causes that inequity to become even more. Um, even more felt within our community. There was one email that we had, that our school board had received that I think um, is really telling, and it's from a, a member of our community who works in the mental health space. And this uh, person wrote, early release Wednesdays pose challenges for working parents, particularly those in low income households. Many working parents are unable to leave their jobs during the middle of the day, and in turn struggle to arrange childcare or supervision for their children during these early release hours. Early release Wednesday can therefore be disruptive to work schedules, pose part potential financial hardships, and exacerbate existing achievement gaps. And it's that last piece that I think is really important, exacerbating ach existing achievement gaps. Moreover, students who have access to private tutors or extracurricular enrichment activities on early release days have a distinct advantage over peers who do not. This further perpetuates disparities in academic outcomes and opportunities for our students. I think that sums it up perfectly of why I feel that the status quo um, currently is not something that we should be continuing with. I would be, I'm not saying to eliminate because I do see a value that teachers are getting and I'm trying to, I, I hear them and I, and I see them and I'm, trying to balance these two interests, these, this inequities on especially the, the disadvantaged families that we heard from. And we just heard tonight that um, um, 37, there was an, our economically disadvantaged families grew by 37% in, in Falls Church City. Um, and now it's over 10% of our student population. We heard that from the demographer who spoke earlier. Um, so balancing that with balancing the interests of teachers, um, you know, I think reducing the early release Wednesdays is probably the right path to go. Um, I, I think Dr. Ortiz might have thought a little bit differently than I did on that, so I'm not com completely concurring with him on that piece, but um, especially reducing would be the right path for now. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. Vice Gold? Yeah. Um, I will start with, I support keeping early use Wednesday as it is now, um, and I also support, uh, strongly support a, a start time of 8.30, so um, for the reasons that were mentioned. Um, 
Speaking of early release Wednesday, I do agree with Dr. Ortiz that, uh, to, that he successfully reminded us that the JTP town hall that we did, there was a strong advocacy for getting rid of early release Wednesdays for JTP. So if that's a possibility from an operational perspective, I'll leave that to Dr. Noonan and his team to, to work with. Um, I do feel like if keeping the early release Wednesday option, uh, it, it does create uh, inequitable opportunities as long as we, um, if we don't provide childcare. I think um, we've been actively exploring that. I know Dr. Noonan has been exploring that. I, and I feel like from a resource perspective, we should significantly increase the opportunities and spaces for students to have childcare options to address exactly um, what Ms. Silverman um, mentioned. I would, um, I, I feel like it was interesting when we started the early release Wednesday discussion back in the spring, I was probably of the mindset that reducing or even eliminating um, is, is, a, is a viable option. And just knowing from my own te teaching experience, I was, I was in favor. I would say that the work that we did, and I'll applaud us if I can allow to do that, we don't get a lot of applauses um, these days. Um, for our town hall efforts, we had um, over, I, I can't remember the number of town halls we had, uh, 10 plus, um, and overwhelmingly there was support for keeping the, the, the early release Wednesdays. And I feel like um, even though that I had a different perspective or framework, um, I really appreciated the change in the framework I had from talking with so many community members. Um, the, uh, so, so I'm definitely in favor of keeping the early release Wednesday. And I would say that if we write this as a policy, if at another time a school board wanted to revisit it, I would hope that they would do the work that we did to explore that, to make the changes that reflect what the community wants. In terms of the start time, um, I have not wavered on this. I've always uh, said that this is going to be a community sacrifice. Um, the elementary school community, to Dr. Ortiz's point, will have to change the schedules. Um, there will be changes in the schedule, but I feel like we owe it to our secondary students um, based on the significant amount of research that shows the social and emotional well-being that is attributed to, late, to later start times. So I feel like as a community, we all have to make that sacrifice, and it is a difficult sacrifice to make for some families, and I do acknowledge that but I think it's important for our students. And I do know that some students will be making a sacrifice. We did hear from students that said, moving it back 8.30 might not help my schedule. Um, and I fully understand that based on their prior obligations. But I would say this policy is one of the few policies that we can fully make that says this is for our students and I'm proud to support this. Um, we did hear from our students that we should not cut the time for Mustang Block. We heard that three or four times in our student town hall. And I'm sure our student rep, Sean, has probably heard that as well, that it's an important piece. I think to Ms. Silverman's point, uh, cutting it all from an academic block is, uh, is, is, it would be difficult. But I would close with Mr. Laub uh, said that he uh, assured us that he would work with students and obviously the team to figure out where to cut that time. And he felt strongly that cutting one to two minutes from each academic block is not going to significantly impact the instructional experience that students would have. And so I would trust Mr. Laub and his efforts to work, and Mr. Pickering's efforts to work with students to address those changes. So that's my points. Thank you so much, Vice Chair Gold. I think you're the last man standing. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I mean, I think all my colleagues here have um, mentioned many of the things that we've heard uh, in the town halls, from emails, uh, from standing at the bus stop, uh, from seeing people at soccer games. Um, there is overwhelming support at, at the elementary school from the teachers for keeping early release Wednesdays. Um, there um, is, you know, we, we've gotten a lot of feedback from parents who say, this is a huge burden on us, but we still want to keep it. Um, and and I and you know that's one of the perspectives that I really appreciate because it's one of those things where you can kind of say, oh, you know, like this is a burden and I want to get rid of it, or this is a benefit, but I still want to get rid of it. Like I can I, I appreciate those parents who say this is a big burden, but we still want to keep it. Um, specifically, when uh, you know, my, uh, I'm a you know part of the special ed community um, and in speaking to my friends in that community, the parents there. Um, you know, I, I came into the discussion, and I'm still kind of torn on uh, early release Wednesdays, but I came into the discussion with the experience that my son had a lot of difficulty going into some uh, aftercare, particularly if it was just one day a week, particularly if those people were going to be very unfamiliar. Um, I'd also know other, pa other parents who have children who, like, they're not going to be able to use any aftercare, um, and, and they know it but they still advocate for keeping their release Wednesdays. And I think in, in thinking about um, equity, we also need to think about, okay, well, what do our teachers do during the time that they use early release Wednesdays? Um, that is the time that the special ed teachers have to talk to the uh, gen ed teacher, to talk to the uh, specialist teachers, um, to uh, kind of prepare those teachers for caring for those, those students. And so I think that's something important. Um, it's one of those things where uh, a lot of the feedback has been, you know, we're able to take care of this and, you know, I can take my kid to, you know, whatever enrichment thing. And that's great that people can do that. Um, that's not something that um, I think we don't necessarily need to make our decision based on whether somebody can take their kid to, uh, to whether, whether somebody has it solved. Um, um, at the same time, as um, uh, Dr. Ortiz and uh, Ms. Silverman mentioned, you know, this is a burden. Like this is a burden on low-income families. Um, there is no question that it is a burden, um, and particularly e even even though some some of my colleagues want to keep the uh, schedule the, s the same as it is, I wouldn't support it staying the same. I would say that if we are going to keep it, we need to go to a weekly uh, because it is disruptive to those members of our community who find it the most difficult um, to have it. You know. All these Wednesdays, except for this Wednesday. I mean, it, while people can schedule it, I've heard many, uh, many people who, you know, even 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 me, I'm like, oh, dang it, it's half day, if half, it's half day Wednesday again. So I, I think going to every Wednesday would be much more beneficial than keeping it as it is. Um, but I will say that I think we need to be committed to actually providing a childcare solution and funding it with transportation if we are going to keep it. I don't think it is fair to those parents who find it, um, you know, hard to work around, hard to, even if they can kind of work around it, it'd still be hard if they didn't have transportation. And particularly if we're going to, um, as uh, Ms. Silverman mentioned, we, we've had an increase in the number of students who are, uh, who are economically disadvantaged. And I think it would be incumbent on this community as a wealthy community, which uh, we have been, so many of the emails that we've gotten say we're a wealthy community. We we can we can handle early release Wednesdays, and I am 
uh, wholeheartedly in agreement that we're a wealthy community and we can handle early release Wednesdays so long as we are committed to providing childcare and transport from that childcare for those students who need it. Um, and start times, yeah, I think we should push it back. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Anderson. Okay, and one follow-up, I, I just wanted, um, Mr. Lewin, you, you um, were talking about uh, early release Wednesdays. I think your uh, point was more about the student perspective, right, and wanting more um, that students felt that that would be something that was, I know Dr. Dimmick, I, I agree with Dr. Dimmick, when we met with the teachers, there wasn't like an overabundance of excitement from teachers to have more, but I think you're, you, your perspective was from the student perspective, that there was a desire from the students you spoke with about having more early release Wednesdays. Is that right? Okay. And I think that was more for the, just the mental health piece and the being able to have some free time to get things done and socialization. And um, I mean, yeah. In terms of like my peers and I, I feel as though additional short Wednesdays would definitely be the preferred choice for the board um, it is used for extracurricular activities. I know a lot of students and, my, and peers of mine who are in National Honor Society or different service communities like that use that time for um, service hours and they go out into the community and do activities of that nature. And I know a lot of students, especially when it comes time for exams, um, in the spring they use that as study time and they go to different establishments around town and they study. and. Um, yeah, I feel as though also just the social, emotional, wellness piece of it all, um, it is great to have a break, you know, and especially in months like March and April and May, where things pick up and get more stressful for students, especially for juniors and seniors, as they have IB exams and AP exams. Um, those breaks are so um, appreciated, and I feel as that that definitely would be the student perspective in terms of early release Wednesdays, but I also do acknowledge the challenges with all of that. Um, but in terms of my peers and I, I would feel as though that's the consensus. Okay, thank you so much, Ms. Silverman. If I could just respond to Dr. Anderson's, sure. one of his comments. Um, Dr. Anderson had brought up, uh, you know, with the possibility, one idea was moving to every week of early release. Um, I just do want to bring up the, the fact that Dr. Noonan had pointed out at our last work session that our students in this area um, have the lowest amount of hours in the classroom. So I think that that would exacerbate that issue if we added more early release. Um, so I just wanted to, us to be cognizant of that fact. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. And just to follow up, Dr. Anderson, um, your advocacy for, um, I just wanted to be clear, for transportation, and was it, was it paid for child, free childcare? So that was, you were talking about in terms of the, um, the community that is at the lower socioeconomic status. At the very least. Okay, okay. Um, because I think part of it is, um, you know, just my just thought of, of course, I'm not operational, but, um, you know, we are wealthy. I think there's just, you know, I think there's a difference between talking about some, a smaller segment of the community. I think busing an entire, you know, everyone who's in early release would be probably, I think Dr. Wood, Noonan would say, would be very hard to find the number of bus drivers. But, but if you're, if you're speaking of a smaller segment of the community that is it a financial need, that might be more doable. 
I don't doubt that we would have to put resources into it, um, but we also currently provide buses for a late release at, uh, like a late pickup at the high school. Um, I don't see any reason why we couldn't spend the money to do that for an aftercare program for uh, half day Wednesdays for those who really need it. Um, and even even for those, so, and even for those who aren't necessarily economically disadvantaged, I see no reason why we couldn't provide that bus service. If we needed to say, provided some bonus to uh, bus drivers in order to incentivize them to do that, I think that would be perfectly worth the cost. Okay. So maybe Dr. Green, that would be something that you, we could look into and see with the, you know, and also the, the logistics of with the with the secondary late buses, you know, how that would all all work. Um, okay, well, thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, please. I, I just, I thank you all for your comments. Um, I'm not going to respond to all of them. I, I do want to just say that we have tried to kick around the idea of an after-school program for Wednesdays only. Um, and I think the challenge there for us is really where would we have it? So one of the things, because all of the space at the two elementary schools is being used by the after-school program currently, um, so one thing we, we could look at is maybe um, busing kids off of the Mount Daniel and Oak Street site, uh, uh, you know, to somewhere else. I, you know, the high school and the middle school are going to be used because class will be in session. So I think, I think our challenge is going to be if there is an uptake of, of a significant number of students is, is really the space. Um, so we're, we're trying to sort through that. Um, the other thing that I think we need to be prepared for is if we start offering busing on Wednesdays, um, we might get pushed to offer buses on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, which we currently don't do at the elementary schools. Um, so I just think we need to kind of be prepared for, for that too. So, um, you know, we can, we can certainly look into it. But we ha and we have been. I, I don't want people to think that we haven't been looking at this. It is a, it is a challenge. Um, and then the other thing I, I just want to respond to Dr. Ortiz. Um, I, I've built master schedules in every level of school for the last, I've done about 15 of them. And I, I will say it's a virtual impossibility to get both vertical and horizontal teaming in the same, at the same time. Um, you can do one, um, but it's virtually impossible to do both. And I, I think the challenge at the elementary schools is the way that the specials are organized um, and, and providing grade level teams time together. So I, I, I will say that that's, um, that's really a tall order that even with the most creative minds across the country who've written books about it, um, can't have a hard time have a hard time doing too. So, just wanted to, to to say that it's not that we're against it. Be great to be able to do it. It's just a challenge time wise. Yes, Mr. Gould. Just two follow up questions, Dr. Noonan. You mentioned. Um, can you clarify? You said we can't offer. You don't want to offer buses on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday for the daycare. For daycare, I, it's not that I don't want to. We currently don't. We don't offer any busing for daycare after school at the elementaries right now. So that'd be like daycare that ends like it later than this. Yeah. So if we offered, so the idea of offering, I think to Dr. Anderson, I'm not paraphrasing, but if we offered busing just for Wednesday aftercare that ends at a normal time, not like a, a later time, is that is that is that what you were advocating? Is that still an issue you're thinking? Or I, I think we need to look at it. We do have the secondary buses that run. I'm not sure what their capacity is, and there may be some ways to loop back for students on Wednesdays. 
um, or to seek additional drivers for additional buses on those Wednesdays. Um, I, it's, I, I don't know. I, I guess my point was we have about 350 kids that are in the aftercare daycare program that we currently don't bus. And if we start offering it on Wednesdays, you might get a push to offer it every day. That's all I'm saying. Okay. And that would be a challenge for us. No, that makes sense. I don't think we heard the need for pushing for aftercare buses for those days. Um, but, but yeah, it was more the Wednesday, just the Wednesday. But yeah, and we can, we would definitely push back if that's going to be cause an operational headache for you all, if we started to get that. And then you also mentioned, can you clarify for the community, you said you're concerned about space at the schools. I imagine someone in the community might say, you know, we have space. Why can't we run two aftercare programs in the same huge elementary school? Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I think, I think that, um, and it's not that we can't do it. I, I don't want to, it's just a challenge, right? Um, I, right now we have, just for rough order of magnitude, 150 students after school at Mount Daniel and 150 students after school at Oak Street that are daycare students that are there five days a week, including the half day Wednesdays. Those students are using the cafeteria, they're using the gym, they're using some of the larger spaces that we have available. Um, and the amount, the amount of students that are there take up those spaces pretty significantly with the, the limited number of adults that we have based on the ratios for providing that care. If we do increase by, let's say, 100 kids at each of those sites, it would mean that we would need probably four to five more people to keep the ratios right for our daycare or for our care provisions and then those hundred students would need to be somewhere else right because the cafeteria is full the gym's full um, they could be outside we could do the rotations but it just becomes a challenge with space so what we would need to do then is go back to our teachers and say because we don't use classroom space um, and let me be clear about that. And we don't use classroom space because teachers don't want kids in their classrooms after school. So we, we may need to go back to our teachers and stay, say, hey, if we're going to run, you know, one rotation of tutoring and one rotation of something else, can we use your classroom? Um, we're not opposed to doing that. I don't think we just need to, uh, I, I think the challenge for us is finding, finding four people for each of the sites, if we added 100 kids to each site or, or more, um, and then finding the space for it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and I, I just want to make sure that I'm clear because I, I don't want you to think that I'm opposed to anything. I, you, you've said I'm opposed. I'm not opposed. It's just a challenge. That's all. Thanks. Thank you. And, and we realize, Dr. Noonan, and I know Ms. Michael is um, with, with us as well virtually. Um, you know, there's a lot, lots and lots of operational piece, pieces to this, so we definitely understand that. Um, so one of the things that Vice Chair Gould did uh, mention um, talking about policy, and I, I um, contacted you all, and it's, it seemed like the majority of the board is interested in putting our decision into policy. Um, so is, is that correct? I'm seeing head nods. I know Ms. Silverman wasn't sure. I'm still sorry. Okay, I'm that's still fine. Undecided. That's fine. Um, and so I think so that that is, and I know Dr. Dimmick was. So I, I, that's um, at least five of us interested to put it into policy. So, um, so what we'll, we'll do from here is, and and you know, as I've talked to communicated with the board, um, it could you know be likely that this is not a unanimous vote, and that's that's okay. Um, what we'll do from here is that um, Vice Chair Gould and I will um, work with Ms. Minson and. Um, and Dr. Noonan to come up with um, 
a policy and again this is you know there's um we're not the seven of us aren't in complete agreement so um you know we'll we'll work on a policy and a draft of a policy to get your all feedback and it may be um that not everyone um supports that policy and then that's you know of course uh your um you, you know, uh, school board members free to vote vote against the policy when it, when it comes to a vote. Um, but the idea would be that as as we've talked uh, many times, that at the core of our of our responsibilities and missions are policies. And to that end, we would look to do a first reading of a policy um, at our next meeting at November twenty eighth. And um, and then and again, that would be after you know over the next week, Vice Chair Gould and I reaching out to you all um, with with a draft of of policies for both of these. We would do a first reading on November twenty eighth, and um, a second reading and a vote at our meeting in December. So um, that's what we're looking at. Um, and again, we invite the community. Uh, again, to uh, as always, uh, email us at schoolboard at fccps.org with any feedback. And just wanting to thank the community who has come out to our town halls, um, to students and staff, and to this board. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's exactly right. And I think, Vice Gold, you, you made a great point that, uh, you know, hopefully future, if, if anything were to change with the policy, that we put a lot of time and effort into this. And uh, I think we all really did keep open minds and I think we we went into it with certain ideas and perceptions and a lot of our minds were changed as a result of all this outreach that we've done. So, but, but again, uh, we have not made a final decision, so the community is welcome to email us um, questions and feedback. One thing, oh, actually one thing I did want to, sorry, um, we did receive an email from the Athletic Boosters. I wanted to uh, close with that. And so this is, I think, more operational with, with Ms. Michael and Dr. Noonan. They supported uh, changing the start times with a 310 end time as long as it we were able to balance it all with needing buses to get kids to sporting events. Um, so I'll leave that that to you all. Um, but I just wanted to bring that up. I, I will say, I, you know, it's... There, there are an awful lot of competing demands um, in all of this, and and I think that'll be a challenge for us to sort of sort through with these competing demands. Um, I, I, I just want to give you all a sense of sort of my back of the napkin thought in terms of the high school schedule, just to kind of put it in your mind. This is not at all the final, but just something to think about. Um, currently, our our blocks of time for instruction range from 84 minutes to 87 minutes. And one of the things we could do is to equalize each of those to 82 minutes. So you've got three instructional blocks at 82 minutes plus stable and Mustang block. If we took stable, so if we did that, um, we would save a, a few minutes. Um, and based on the conversations we've had with Peter Laub and, and the other administrators that wouldn't impact instruction um, because of the way it's organized. Um, we currently do six minute passing periods. We could go, we could go to five. Um, I've walked the building, I've, I've put it out there, I've done a video of myself walking up and down that building in less than five minutes and over to the middle school. So if we went to five, that saves us some more time. And then if we took one minute from stable block, that would get us to 15 minutes without touching um, Mustang block. So there are ways to sort of cut this where it's really negligible and on the margin um, to where uh, it wouldn't have a significant, a significant impact on instruction. Um, 
and and there are there are 15 other permutations or 1500 other permutations of that i just wanted you to know for for the and also for the public to know that we wouldn't cut 15 minutes from a class or 15 minutes from we wouldn't cut out stable block for example um, so it would be just little bits and bytes here and there um, and of course if you extrapolate that out over the year it is it is lost instructional time um, but i do think um, a lot of the time used in a in an 80 minute 82 minute and most blocks that I've experienced are somewhere between 75 and 80. So when I look at it and see anywhere from 84 to 87, that's an extraordinary amount of time. Um, I, I do think that that time can be structured well um, to serve the needs of our kids. Thank you for that, Dr. Newton. Very helpful. Any other questions or comments before we close this out? Okay. Well, thank you very much for this. Good discussion. Uh, and we're going to move on now to uh, 8.02, second reading and adoption of policies. And can I send it straight over to Ms. Minson? Ms. Minson. Good evening. We have one policy for second reading this evening. Um, it's a policy the board had previously adopted and the VSBA updated based on changes to the Virginia Code. Um, it's policy EB, School Crisis, Emergency Management, and Medical Emergency Response Plan. There were no changes proposed by the board at first reading. I did notice that line 92 was missing a comma, so I did add that. That would be the one change from first reading. Are there any questions about policy EB? All right, thank you. Okay, thank you, Ms. Minson. All right, if we could have then a motion to approve uh, the, the policy EB, please. Yes, Dr. Anderson. I move that the school board approve second reading and adoption of policy EB, school crisis, emergency management, and medical emergency response plan as presented. Thank you. Could I have a second? Thank you, Vice Chair All those in favor say yes. Yes. All those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries. And we're now at 9.01 future agenda items. Anyone have any thoughts on future agenda items? I know. Well, I hi. Oh, could, hi, Dr. Could I add a future agenda item, even though I'm leaving the board? Yes. Let, let's give them a long to-do <laughs> list, Dr. Lindemick. <laughs> I just, I, I, um, I really enjoyed the shadow day. I, I am appreciative to uh, Principal Doherty and, and Principal Cateson, excuse me, for sharing their time with me. And I also found it very valuable to meet with um, Katie Clinton and Denzel Winton of the daycare program. And I think school board members should do this regularly. Just. My two cents. Um, I, it was the first time I'd done something like that since being on the board, and it was really helpful to see how the different pieces fit together, and especially um, interesting to, to talk with the daycare program folks. So, thank you, Dr. Dimmick. Yeah, that's it's um, it's a great. Uh, suggestion. I I uh, remember when when Vice Chair Gould came on the board and, and I talked to the new board members and suggested that when when we look at advisory committees that you pick an advisory committee that you're not really as familiar with as a way to increase your knowledge. And this is another way. You know, maybe it's it's something that as as board members come on or just or current, but just you know trying to fill in those those gaps. That, you know, whether it's that you don't you have younger children, you don't have older children. Or you don't have children that are in you know this or that, or you don't have a knowledge. You don't have kids that use 
use aftercare, you know, all these different sorts of things that just makes you a stronger school board member. So I think that's a really good, good suggestion. Uh, one thing, uh, Ms. Tyson and I recently uh, attended the uh, regional leadership meeting of um, the area school systems, and we, we talked about um, the literacy, what was it called, the Lit Literacy Act? Virginia Literacy Act. And so I, I think we both found that very interesting and helpful. And so I thought that might be an interesting work session, Dr. Noonan, at some point next year, just to um, educate the, the public on what, what that's all about. We, we would love to have uh, Dr. Ann Boletto come and talk about the work she's doing, um, along with many of our reading specialists across the, the system. Um, they've been on top of it. You know, we're, we're already immersed pretty heavily in it. Um, and uh, the work is, is, is good. Okay. So love to have, have them come talk. That'd be great. And then, um, as I mentioned previously, I attended the Special Education Advisory Committee. <laughs> Ms. Sharp's not gonna be happy I was gonna say this, but I, I was so impressed by um, that meeting. This is, I was able to, because Ms. Tice couldn't go, I had the fortune of, of going and attending that meeting. And um, it was just, I learned so much, and I've been on the board for four years, um, and I just think that at some point, at Ms. Sharp's choosing, uh, maybe a, a work session presentation from Ms. Sharp on just all, you know, she, it's, it's just, it was very, I found it very informative. And so, um, you know, I think that would be a nice topic for you all to have an update on what's going on in special education services. For sure. We'll, we'll add that. Thank you. Don't be mad at me. <laughs> okay. Anything else? All right. So we are now at 10.01 superintendent's report. Thank you very much. Um, all right, so under wellness and ec uh, equity and belonging, um, I wanna just start by giving a huge shout out to our girls field hockey team. Um, they ended the season, the regular season 18 and 0 and finished the season 21 and 1 um, and had a great time going to the playoff games and then also to the final at Clarendon's and I wanna give Clarendon's a shout out. Thanks Rebecca Tax for um, hosting the event um, both for the, the state semi and also for the, the final, um, but they, they played hard, um, they played well this year, and displayed a notable amount of teamwork, dedication, and sportsmanship. And, um, uh, and while they, they finished runner-up in the state, they have nothing to um, feel bad about. They were extraordinary. Um, I also wanna um, just mention that we had a, um, an environmental project event um, over an environmental festival at Meridian. Uh, on Monday that focused on sustainability actions, which we're really excited about during this event. All of our students at the high school had the opportunity to participate in a variety of projects, service projects, um, including propagating plants to use as gifts for staff, building bee hotels, creating art, creating stress balls, uh, engaging in self-care activities. And this was all, all a student-organized and student-led event that was initiated by um, Meridian High School's junior, Ali Zagorski, and involved a number of students uh, from a variety of different groups, including the Environmental Club, Trium, Hand to Hunger, the Art Club, um, and Minds Matter. Um, but a special highlight was um, the planting of uh, some daffodil bulbs. If you're not, if you don't know about these daffodil bulbs, uh, let me just quickly tell you about them. Um, these were uh, dug out of Lou Olam's yard. So some of you might know the name Lou Olam, but Lou Olam is the father 
of the IB program in the city of Falls Church. And he um, died a couple of years ago at a, a very good age. He, he lived a good long life, um, but he uh, in his yard had uh, just prolific daffodils. And so um, Mary Beth Conley and a bunch of people went in and uh, dug out all of these bulbs from the yard with the appropriate permission from the Olam family, I might add. Um, but we did plant a bunch of those, they did plant a bunch of those in the Legacy Grove. So Lou will be with us for, for years to come, which is really great. Um, a special shout out to Jenny Thomas, um, who really helped in, and aided in that uh, event. Uh, in terms of IB infused teaching and learning, the PYP exhibition starts this month. Um, this is the culminating project as students finish their elementary years and the PYP. Um, it's a big deal for Oak Street fifth grade students. As many of you know who've been there, they, they pick a topic, they dive deeply into that topic. Um, and after almost a decade of implementing our projects, our fifth grade teachers are experts on how to make it part of their curriculum. Um, it's a great example of how individual students are able to accelerate their own learning and everyone can, can participate at their own level. Um, I'm particularly excited about it, um, and I know Ms. Michael probably is too, and, and Dr. Bates, um, because we all help co-facilitate a group um, at some point of the exhibition, and it's a nice opportunity for us to be back in the classroom working with kids um, and helping them through. Um, and then the last piece I wanted to mention around resource management and continuous improvement, um, as I mentioned or, or was men mentioned in the video, the rooftop solar is going on at the high school. Um, we have a really nice event um, that's going to be a ribbon cutting on Tuesday, December 5th at 3.30 on the fifth floor at Meridian. You'll be able to see um, those fields, quote unquote, fields of uh, PV array on the on the roof and we're excited about that um, and information about the event and um, actually the announcements will come later this week so be on the lookout for that um, but it should be a nice event um, we had a really great day today it's um, one of the few days that we get a chance to go out and give away money with the falls church ed foundation and today was um, the falls church ed foundation super grant celebration parade remember we're not allowed to use prize patrol anymore because we got a cease and desist letter from um, the Publishers Clearinghouse. So we now call it the Celebration Parade. Um, but that was held today and I'm uh, pleased to, to have been accompanied with the Falls Church Ed Foundation leadership. Gave 18 awards out throughout the division and some of the highlights were um, at Mount Daniel. Um, Nicole Guimaris uh, got 14 new Casio keyboards um, and will start a program called the Piano Stars. Um, at Oak Street, um, we will have an artist in residence there um, and begin an art installation much like we did at the high school. Um, this will be slightly different as opposed to a murmuration of birds. It's going to be a school of fish. Um, so that will be fun uh, for all of our kids at Oak Street to participate in. And then um, Kish Rafiq um, won a, a project called Living Anatomy Labs, which is going to provide skeletons and clay for students to model muscles and anatomy. So that, those were fun to give out. Um, we also announced um, some teacher training grant, grants and a couple of them um, of note are uh, Natalia Guzman, who's a teacher of Spanish at Mount Daniels, taking an IB workshop on the role of, role of language. At Henderson, our special ed administrator, Brittany Allen Shaw, will be attending um, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder training. There's a joke in there somewhere, but I'll hold it to myself. Um, at Meridian, um, CTE teacher Kenny George will be bringing in a professional 
uh, machinists to lead student safety training, and lastly, all of the school psychologists will be attending the National Association of School, school Psychologists Conference. And um, I just can't say enough uh, about how much we appreciate the Ed Foundation and the extra support they provide to us so that the money um, that we spend goes directly to um, our students or to teacher salaries, and they pick up a lot of things for us that um, we would be funding otherwise, but are uh, very fortunate to have them as an additional source. So that's it. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Dr. Noon. Any questions? Or Okay, great. Okay, we're going to move on now to uh, board and student liaison comments. I'll start with Mr. Lewin. Do you have any updates with, for us? Um, I do. So firstly, I mean, echoing Dr. Noonan, we're all so proud of the girls' field hockey team. Um, that was such a like exciting communal like um, celebration that everyone at Meridian got to experience. Um, as well as our girls' cross-country team, they placed eighth at states, and our football and volleyball teams also made it to the regional playoffs, which is a testament to their teamwork. Um, and I am very happy also to report that Meridian's own Hand to Hunger Club recently began a food drive at the secondary campus and also at Oak Street Elementary. And they're collecting food donations to help those in need and donating the um, collection to Arlington Food Assistance Center. And we are proud of their community spirit and dedication to serving others. And they are beginning to expand not only to other schools in the area, but other countries around the world. Um, the junior class SCA is hosting weekly in-school fundraisers called SCA Thursdays to fundraise for prom. And again, to echo Dr. Noonan, the Sustainability in Action Committee put on the Fall Festival in front of Meridian this Monday, which was super exciting. It was a fantastic opportunity for students to learn more about sustainability and environmental stewardship while having fun with their peers outdoors. Being the president of Meridian Minds Matter myself, it was very awesome to see everyone coming together to learn about how the seasons impact uh, individual students' mental health, how to better support their peers, and to make fall-themed stress balls at our station. And at Meridian, veter veterans were recognized all over the screens for Veterans Day, displaying the names of all those who have served in the military from Meridian, which was super cool to see and sparked a lot of conversation among students. And lastly, the gymnastics team recently had their interest meeting for their first ever season, and we are thrilled to see this new addition to our sport, sports program and cannot wait to cheer them on as they grow and move forward. So there is evidently a lot going on, but there's something for every student to participate in, especially now. And our school community has been very busy but doing great stuff. Great, great update. Thank you so much, Mr. Lewin. Uh, Ms. Silverman. I just want to comment, I'm so excited about this gymnastics team as a former gymnast. I'm thrilled that we have a gymnastics team. I can't wait. There's actually adult opportunities at a nearby gymnastics gym. And once I'm over my broken toe, I will be going. And I invite anybody else. They have open gym, so please come with me. Um, we did my updates. Uh, I attended a um, business and education um, meeting last I think, yes, it was last week, and we discussed our um, our uh, committee charge, and hopefully we'll be voting on that soon. Um, additionally, I want to give a thanks to Mr. Finneran for participating in the legislative briefing we had this morning with our um, colleagues in Arlington and Alexandria City. Um, I think it was a really great presentation that Mr. Finneran gave about our legislative package. It was really interesting to hear about the other school districts' uh, legislative packages and a lot of alignment, and um, which I, I don't 
think is unexpected. And um, I, I just see lots of ways that we can work together on hoping to bring about some positive legislation for our schools. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. I'll, I'll watch you do tumbling, but I will not participate. Once the toe is better, I will be there. And Chair Gould, uh, you are, you're already promoting him? I did that again. <laughs> Chair Downs, I expect you there with me. I, I did that at the last meeting. Chair, I, I'm tired. Chair Downs, That's I expect okay. you Thank you, Ms. Silverman. Dr. Ortiz, any updates? Yeah, thank you, Chair Downs. Um, a couple updates. <laughs> <laughs> My, 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 my back is hurting thinking of it. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so uh, I, as, uh, you, you can kill two birds with one stone. Last night we had both the Mustang Athletic Boosters meeting and the ESOL Advisory Committee meeting. In addition to the aforementioned um, super success of the field hockey team and the great watch party that occurred to celebrate them, um, uh, there's, there's, uh, last night was winter sports info night, which was very popular. Um, and then, um, the homecoming game was a huge success for the boosters as well as for the, the schools. Um, uh, there's a bunch of, uh, there's, there's, um, the, the boosters are working on a number of items with respect to sponsorships and other item and, and other key initiatives. And then furthermore, um, winter sports, um, swag has arrived. So please go to the Mustang Athletic Boosters website where you can order it. Um, moving on to the ESOL Advisory Committee meeting, um, we really want to thank um, Amanda Ronco and Matt Sowers and the, um, and, and, and the head of the, of, the, of the Family Resource Center for joining us last night for uh, a discussion of the ways in which our um, counseling staff supports English language learners at the at the secondary campus. We heard a, a whole lot from them about their strategies for doing so, as well as their coordination across both the Family Resource Center as well as with individual families and students. Um, and um, really goes into um, helping that committee to start the process of meeting its charge this year, which is to further inclusivity for um, English language learners in all aspects of the Falls Church City Public Schools. Um, and so with that, that's the end of, um, of, my, um, of my report, but I do want to make sure to thank the counseling staff as well as Marina and the Family Resource Center for all of their hard work and for putting in an extra long day to spend it with the committee. Thank you so much, Dr. Ortiz. Vice Chair Gould. Thank you. Uh, I uh, unfortunately missed the Chamber of Commerce meeting this morning, um, so I apologize to Emily Jenkins and crew, but Regan Davis was there, so represented. I was at the VSBA legislative, which I don't know if you'll be updating us on that or if that's an updatable meeting. Um, and then I, uh, Chair Downs and I attended office hours, and we had a family come from uh, 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 talk about the difficulties of learning about the system and navigating the secondary experience. They were um, uh, not native-born to the U.S., so and it wasn't an English translation issue. It was just more of a cultural issue of how high schools are organized, the number of acronyms, the number of meetings, the number of systems, um, and just and wondered how it could be better organized and communicated upon talking with this family, the mother and the, the student attended, um, 
I think it turned out Chair Downs and I actually learned more about from this parent about what's going on. They're actually very well informed, um, and we informed them that this is yeah you're doing very well with uh, navigating the system. Uh, but it was great. It was good to get good feedback. They gave us some good ideas. So um, so yeah, that was our office hours. Thank you, Vice Chair Gold. A uh, couple updates from me. Uh, we, uh, Dr. Noon and I attended the PEAK meeting uh, a couple weeks ago, and some of the topics on the agenda um, we're looking at um, Virginia, uh, the governor's been talking about pay increases, and Dr. Noonan has explained how, how that works with our local composite index, and, and that, um, so talked about that, we talked about gifted endorsements at Oak Street uh, Elementary and um, clarifying the religious leave uh, policy and how uh, staff can take religious leave, um, talked about just um, enhancing communication. One of the, I, I think, uh, interesting topics we talked about was, um, so uh, peak, what makes peak a little bit different um, in terms of, um, I guess, the scope of what we talk about is really, it, it's um, not supposed to be so much school specific. So we have representatives from all across the um, spectrum, every, every, um, every school. And so we really try to keep that focused on uh, things that are system wide. And we had a good discussion about, you know, it seems like that is also a good place that if there's a topic that comes up that affects more than one school, so it may not affect the whole system, but it does affect more than one school, that PEAK seems to be the appropriate way to address that. And I think we were all in agreement with that. Um, so that was a good conversation. And um, the, uh, the PEAK um, advisory committee made sure to want to let the school board know that all of the teachers at all the different schools were very appreciative of us reaching out and holding the town halls uh, regarding uh, early release and start times. Uh, in terms of Falls Church Education Foundation, Dr. Noonan talked about super grants. Um, the Education Foundation also gave out $40,000 in advanced teacher training grants. And as, you, as we saw tonight, the number of our um, students who are financially at risk has increased. So the Falls Church Education Foundation has increased their budget from $35,000 to $60,000 for the Family Assistance Fund. And that's to, to support those students um, who have financial need. So just to remind the community again, you know, those fun events that we all go to run for the schools and um, the home and garden at garden tour, uh, Little City Scramble, the big gala at the end of the year, those are all things that raise money for the Education Foundation, and those go to training teachers and teacher grants, um, but, you know, in my opinion, most importantly, supporting our, our families who need that financial assistance. And then to- Downs. Yes. I think they gave away $200,000 last night. Wow. I think that was the high watermark from the foundation. Wow. Absolutely. Yep. I'm just start clapping that. Yeah. yeah that's it's huge. It's amazing. It's amazing. So- Again, it, it's it just um, you know that's something that the Education Foundation a couple years ago the um, social workers used to try to raise money and and the um, Education Foundation um, was happy to step in and, and help with that. So again, just uh, really incredible that the support we get from the Education Foundation uh, for our teachers and, and our families. And thanks to um, Suzanne Hladicky and um, who's our our new executive director and then. Debbie Hiscock before her, um, but we're just really 
great, really thankful for that great part partnership. Uh, as um, Vice Chair Gould mentioned and Ms. Silverman mentioned, um, we were at the uh, legislative breakfast this morning with Arlington Public Schools and uh, Alexandria City Schools. And um, we're actually, we'll have a work session on that next meeting. Is that right, Dr. Noonan, to talk more about our legislative package? Uh, but it was a very interesting meeting, you know, the three systems. Um, and so the point of this is that we talk about what our priorities are as school systems and how we want to talk to um, the lawmakers in Richmond and really try to be advocates for the positions um, that we that we hold. And so uh, we had a good discussion with, we had, um, Ms. Minson was also there, we had um, the attorneys in the room, we had um, our lobbyists in the room, we had um, superintendents and school board chairs and so, and then also um, our um, and Patrick Finneran was there, uh, as Ms. Silverman said. And so anyway, it, it was a very interesting, you know, our three school systems, I think, I think very similarly, but even Dr. Noon and I were looking at, at some of the ideas that Arlington had for le their legislative package and thought there were a couple things that were interesting that me, we might want to discuss at the next meeting. Um, one talked about how we teach history. We thought that was an interesting one. Um, and so, uh, so we'll um, be having a draft, another draft that we'll talk about at, at the work session and then with final, with voting on that uh, in December. And then uh, finally, I, as I mentioned three times now, I, <laughs> I attended the Special Education Advisory Committee and again, Ms. Sharp gave a great presentation on things that she's going to be looking at to um, do to, to uh, improve the website and was really great at utilizing the the edu uh, special education committee and what you know what we can do here and there to really make the website more user friendly and help parents as they navigate through the complicated process. Um, and we looked at some statistics and which I found very interesting in terms of you know you, I think we're still seeing some effects from COVID, um, especially with our younger learners and and the number of students who have had to have IEPs and uh, the some of the things that uh, the uh, committee members talked about where they're really concerned about, and this sort of came into play where we, when we were talking about early release Wednesday, but they're very concerned about teacher burnout with special education teachers. And um, so that's something that they've, that is on their mind and kind of that kind of went into the early release piece of it um, as a way of, you know, preventing burnout. Um, but they also talked about interestingly, um, advocating for uh, more help for Ms. Sharp in, in central office that um, there's, as these num we see these numbers increasing and um, just giving um, Ms. Sh Ms. Sharp runs a, it's a, it's a very lean, lean uh, group over there. And so maybe I think that you're gonna be seeing some advocacy from them to give her some more assistance. And that's it for me, Dr. Anderson. Thank you. Uh, while the daycare advisory board did not uh, meet yesterday uh, due to various scheduling conflicts with the with the members, uh, I was able to do uh, the shadow days um, like many of the other uh, uh, board members. I was had the pleasure of hanging out with uh, Miss Silverman uh, for a lot of the day. Um, but one thing I wanted to highlight from that is that I got to uh, shadow the transportation uh, transportation department in the uh, in the morning, and uh, I got to talk to Regina Anderson for a while uh, and how how committed she is to the safe transport of children. And then I got to go on a bus route uh, for uh, for Mount Daniel. And she and the bus driver mentioned that um, the students in Falls Church were uh, the most polite students that they have uh, interacted with. And uh, I, I think uh, uh, Ms. Anderson um, 
uh, funnily enough, my last name, um, uh, Re Regina said that uh, I think she had uh, driven in uh, another district and had been uh, in uh, Fairfax, I believe. Um, and so um, having having that commented on was uh, was quite nice. And I was also able to uh, attend the fall party in Miss Lauer's class at Oak Street, uh, and she has a, a great class over there. Uh, we did salt art. It was quite fun. Okay, well, uh, thank you again to Chair Downs for um, for attending the Special Education Advisory Committee meeting for me. I was sorry to miss it. I did want to give yet one more shout out to Ms. Sharp because the work she's doing on the parent education page is so exciting and fantastic. It's such going to be such a great uh, resource for our community. Um, and I also wanted to mention that there is a post-secondary transition event on the 16th um, that I'm sure has been, I know, has been posted in the morning announcements and in, I think, in principal emails as well. Uh, the Health and Wellness Advisory Committee met last week, um, and they are they hit the ground running. They have several groups that, um, working in, with some breakout initiatives, uh, building on some of the success they had last year in some different models of engaging the community, and they were very successful in using the, uh, having secondary students engage with middle school or high school students engage with middle school students on some various topics. That was very successful, so they're working on on some of those programs as well, which I think is pretty cool. And then the advisory board for recreation and parks uh, met. They're still working on the, the fellows property and the project that will be happening across from Oak Street and uh, trying to brainstorm some ways for including the, the school's community in that, in that project, which I think would be really cool. I was encouraging them to maybe engage the students in helping name the park or maybe some public art in the park or we'll see. So that that is still in the infancy stage um, in terms of incorporating the school community, but there's some, some cool potential there. And then the student liaisons are starting a clean air initiative um, for our parks. And it was an interesting that that topic came up um, in terms of discouraging. We can't outright um, ban smoking in our parks, but discouraging smoking and vaping in our parks, which was, Interesting that that came up as a topic. Uh, it also came up with health and wellness in terms of the smoking and vaping with the, with the secondary community as well and some advocacy that the students and parents wanted to do in educating the community about that. So I was encouraging them to maybe work together. So we'll see what comes of that. Thank you, Ms. Tice. Okay, any other? Oh, Dr. Dimmick, I'm sorry. My my yeah. computer screen keeps blocking you out. I'm sorry, I'm not forgetting. <laughs> no worries. Um, from attending the library board, the usage of our library keeps going up. Um, I also went to the, I attended the uh, Coral Boosters meeting. Um, there are some concerts coming up. It's, it's holiday season will soon be starting. So the Oak Street's concert is the 6th of December. Um, and then the other ones um, follow, follow the 13th and the 14th, but I'll mention those at our next school board meeting. Um, be on the lookout for singers at other holiday events. And then a number of our students at Henderson and Meridian uh, qualified for district chorus. And we had a couple of students who earned the highest score they could earn. So more news on Coral Boosters next month. Thank you very much. And I think, aren't we going to have, speaking of music, aren't we going to have some Meridian students at the VSBA? Is that right? Yes. The, um, the Meridian Jazz Band will be performing for the Virginia School Board Association on Friday morning during breakfast, I believe. 
Great, thank you. Well, that's a good reason for us all to stay a second night. So yeah, so for just so the community knows, um, the most of the school board will be headed down to Williamsburg tomorrow for our uh, state school board association meeting, the Virginia School Board Association meeting. So yeah, we're looking forward to, to hearing from the Ready and Jazz Band. That's quite an honor, so that, that's really gonna be fun. Okay, so we're gonna move on now to um, 12, section 12 approval of minutes and uh, Ms. Goodell has sent out the minutes to everyone of November 15th, 2022 and December 13th, 2022. And assuming everyone's had a chance to read those and I'd like to ask for unanimous consent and seeing no objections, those minutes are approved. And if you'd see now um, at section 13, FCCPS enrollment, that's for the board review. And we're not gonna go into a second closed meeting and um, from there, we'll adjourn the meeting. So um, this will be the end of the public portion of the meeting. And we are at four point. So thank you all um, for those of you who tuned in tonight to watch the meeting. And we're gonna be moving into a second closed meeting. So we're at 4.01, if someone could read us into closed. I can. Uh, yes, Ms. Silverman. Pursuant to the Virgin, Virginia Freedom of Information Act, I move that the board convene a closed meeting for the following purpose to discuss or consider the identified subject matter. Legal matters under section 2.2-371188. A8. In particular, consultation with legal counsel employed or retained by the public body regarding specific legal matters requiring the provision of legal advice by such counsel. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. Could I have a second? Thank you, Dr. Anderson. All those in favor say yes. Yes, all those opposed say no. Thank you, we'll be moving into closed. And Dr. Dimmick, I've sent you a link for uh, sec closed. Okay, and thank you thank everyone you. for joining us tonight. Have a good evening.